Daddy. Jump, jump. Hello there. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for 22 Jump Street. My name is Tom Chick, and I'm here to discuss 22 Jump Street with you, the listener, and with, I brought along, Christian Moransky. Uh, just refer to me as the Polish Wolverine. Oh. And with our 22 Jump Street tagline, and Kelly Wan, do you remember the 21 Jump Street tagline? No. Me either. What's the 22 Jump Street tagline, Kelly Wan? Why'd you ask that? Wait, that's not what it is. I mean, the tagline for 22 Jump Street is, fuck you again, brain. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I just thought maybe it might tie into the... Dingus felt the need to rewatch 21 Jump Street before we recorded. I saw it uh, a month or so ago. Um, so I thought you might want to revisit something specifically from 21 Jump Street, because I'm pretty sure Dingus is going to. I want to revisit you saying that Let Me In made $150 million, and I want to visit Dingus never having seen Road Warrior and Dumb and Dumber. But my tagline for – my alternate tagline for 22 Jump Street was, it's the wrong cops movie to watch. Mm, hey, we see adults. What the fuck, Tom? Wait, what? What did, I, what did you cuss me out for? <laughs> Not liking that. Not liking what? Wrong cops? No, my tagline for it. Oh, your tag. Okay, no, I, I, I thought I thought you were making a like, wrong cops reference. I was. I was saying watch wrong cops instead of Twenty Two Jump Street. Ooh, well, hold that thought. Let's get into that in a minute. As far as comedies about cops, um, but first, what's uh, that got to do with Twenty Two Jump Street? Let's find out. Uh, Dingus, but, one. Yes, go ahead. Sorry, Dingus. I didn't say anything. That was Kelly. Oh. Dingus, why don't you uh, tell folks a little bit about this movie without spoiling it? All right. Well, this week we saw 21 Jump Street, a 2012 American action romantic comedy movie about two cops who go undercover to bust a high school drug ring. The movie was directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, written by Michael Bacall, based on the TV show by Stephen J. Cannell and Patrick Harbuck. It stars Channing Tatum, Jonah Hill, Brie Larson, Dave Franco, and Rob Riggle. See, Kelly Wand? That's what I thought you might do with the tagline. <laughs> oh. Oh, wait. Uh, hold on. Check your notes, Dingus. That's what I was going to do with the tagline. <laughs> flip, flip uh, forward a few pages. You might have everything arranged in alphabetical order in your notes. Uh, I, I have it arranged. There's a lot of different. Okay. Oh, okay. We saw 22 jumps. I'm sorry. Ah, right, right. Uh, oh, 2004. Yeah, I'm I'm crossing the street right now. Uh, it's a 2004 action comedy crime adapted TV series sequel movie. Wait, I thought that he was that was your joke. Was it was so it was a carbon copy of the first movie, and that's why you read all that. Now you're saying you just got the wrong notes. Yeah, I I just took out my wrong movie diary. It was totally I I don't even. No, know. come on, you did that on purpose. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a series sequel movie about covalent bonds. All right. Um, directed by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller and written by Michael Bacall. Uh, and uh, also Oren Uziel and uh, Rodney Rothman. It stars uh, Channing Tatum and Joan Hill and, oh, Jillian Bell. Mm. How about that? Uh, so, oh, yeah, yeah. Which one was she? Right. Because <laughs> there are two women, uh, notable women cast in the movie, and only one of them really makes an impression, and that's the one who plays Ice Cube's daughter, of course. Yeah. Oh, my God. It really stood out. 
This oh. is why this is why I don't drink. Um, uh, Twenty two Jump Street is rated R. Well, come on, Dingus. Soft R for language throughout. Okay. Sexual yeah. content. Mm-hmm. What? Bullshit. Dr- drug material. Uh, it's, a fake, it's a fake drug, though. Yeah, it's bean bags with lighting. Brief nudity. What? What? <laughs> I'm just telling you. Who? Uh, wait. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa. Back. Brief nudity. The dicks? No, I think the dicks. Uh, Dax. When, when they talk about the the sexual content, they do talk about the pink dildo. Um, brief nudity, I think, relates to spring break and some violence. So if you want to know the difference, in 21 Jump Street was rated R for crude and sexual content, pervasive language, drug material, teen drinking, and some violence. But now there's no teen drinking. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, because they're older. They're college age. It's totally different right. With different yeah. content. I have to say, this is about the only R-rated movie that visits spring break where there isn't female toplessness. There's yeah. a little. But not like spring breakers. There's none. What are you talking about? Yeah. There's, a, there's a Franco without boobs. Right. Yeah, I was talking about dudes, Tom. I don't know what you were talking about. You fucking <laughs> Jesus. Uh, 22 Jump Street is at 71 on Metacritic, which is the average. Oh, it went down. It was at like 86 Friday night. Uh, which is the average rating from various reviews. On uh, Rotten Tomatoes, what was it on Friday night, Kelly Wand? Um, I think that was the 86. The other one was... Uh... I see. Well, on Rotten Tomatoes currently, I can't <laughs> the opening night. We're not news people. It is at 83%. 83% of the, the reviews are positive. It opened at number one. It beat um, How to Train Your Dragon 2. Ouch. Uh, oh, that's weird. There was some uh, question as to which one would come out on top. Uh, because it's an R-rated comedy, they tend to historically not perform as well. Uh, this is, however, the second highest opening for an R-rated comedy of all time. What? Yeah. How about that? Uh, Hangover, 2, Hangover oh. 2 had an $85 million uh, opening. Deserve it. Uh, 22 Jump Street opened at $60 million. Um, Nine short of the funniest number. So, uh, Kelly Wan, why don't you give us a 22 Jump Street synopsis? What, what would you call such a thing, Kelly Wan? Nine short of the funniest number was, it sounds like a Beatles song that got scrapped. Uh, 22 Jump Stropsis. All right. Rock In on. answer to what Dingus said, what'd you ask, Tom? <laughs> JK, did you like how slowly that took me? Appropriate response. Uh, By the some, way, some things are worth waiting for, Kelly Wand. I want to say I'm really excited about two things. A, E3 won the Stanley Cup. Really excited about. I know you don't know what that is, Tom, but Dingus and I do, because we're men. This is the Stanley Tucci Cup. It's an award given to uh, actors with shaved heads. <laughs> but even more importantly, yes, I'm Kelly excited that Jersey Boys is coming out next week. Not because I want to see it. Directed right, by Clint Eastwood, one of right. our favorite directors. I don't have to sit through that fucking To trailer. Lampoon. Because if I had to sit through that trailer one more time, I was going to claw my eyes out. Now I don't have to. Or do they show trailers after movies come out? I can't remember. Uh, I think you won't have to see it anymore, although it'll be available online if you'd like to. Uh... They'll, yeah, there'll be commercials for the DVD before the movies. Yeah. 22 Jumps drops us. Uh, I did notice if you uh, put in a Blu-ray and you deny the Blu-ray permission to go online, it will not download trailers for you, which I love. I didn't realize you could do that. I, I was a. Uh, well, look how you had to do it. You had to game at the system, kind of, to do it. It didn't just go. You don't want to see that shit, do you? 
You would think. I mean, it asked me, do you want to let this... I put in Hannah. I was put. I was setting up a PlayStation 4, which has a Blu-ray player. I put in my Hannah DVD to, to test it out. And the DVD, right off the bat, asked me, hey, do you want to let me go to the internet? And I'm like, no. Who are you kidding? Just get out of there. Just show me the damn movie. No trailers. I loved that. Uh, no ads. Uh, you just tell the DVD or the Blu-ray, hey, stay off the internet, jerk. And you're, uh, it, it won't badge you with stuff. How's PS4? Uh, Kelly Wanda, we'll be covering that on the games podcast. Uh, uh, we're at uh, but we're not out, right? In our in our upcoming hardware podcast. <laughs> hmm. All right, twenty two jump drops this Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some words are all. Last year on the quarter to three movie podcast. Hello there, you're listening. I'm your host Tom Chick. Battleship's not worth saying, but Oblivion, holy cat, save it for the podcast. Dingus. Why is there music playing in scenes where I'm trying to hear the weather? Take a like Scoop McNary. Wow. <laughs> That's your Scoop McNary voice. Kelly yeah, Mark. Kelly, what'd you do my brother? How'd you know that was you and Tom was the first guy? Because of the words you said before it? Uh, that's a good point. Ah, you listened. Uh, I wasn't listening again. Uh, Canada. No. Something inappropriate. One, two, three. This week's 3x3 in honor of autumn coming up in a few months. Best Christmas trees ever filmed. Uh, I didn't do the topic, get it? (laughs) Seen in Rushmore. (laughs) And mine, as always, is Veronica Cartwright and Binion. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter. Quarter3.com. It's the quarter symbol hashtag, the number two spelled out, and the numeral three followed by three spelled out. But send you three by three submissions elsewhere. Next week, we'll be seeing 22 Jump Street. I'm your host, Tom Chick. I was joined by Christian Mirowski. It's pronounced something else. <laughs> and this national treasure. Why, man? Oh, Orange County. Oh, hey, Dingus. Oh, I'm smoking pot. What an edge of tomorrow. I'm all. Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum now bust drug dealers by going to college on the roof of a skyscraper with a laptop on it. They practice not shooting their guns, tape claymores to their chests, and go to a warehouse. One guy there has a funny haircut. The guy from Fargo says things to them in an accent. Jonah Hill phones in lines to a rubber octopus from the craft services table. Edward yawns. They park their car in front of a chase sequence so it blows up. A bunch of stuff involving action doesn't happen. Eventually, some stuntmen dangle from CG wires for comic effect. They report into the mustache guy who ran their police academy. Channing Tatum's all, I'm unintelligent. Jonah Hill's all, I think I'm unintelligent also. Uh, I think in the first movie I was supposed to be smart, or at least good at taking examinations. (laughs) But I used to be fat, so maybe we can still get some mileage out of that. The mustache guy's all, did you just say you're good at taking examinations on police work? Shannon Tater's all, I'm still intelligent. They stop by Ice Cube's office, which now looks like an ice cube. He says motherfucker a few times, but not as often as in the first movie. I guess he's getting too old for that shit. Their character's punishment for getting dangled by CG is to go to a university to drink beer in slow motion while music plays until the movie's over. This time they have to act five years younger instead of ten. The twist is at this time the jock's popular. They move into a dormitory. They're such fish out of water that the twins across the hall talk simultaneously. Damn. 
Jonah Hill's character forgets he effortlessly hooked up with a high school girl in the first movie and is now a virgin again. I remember gloomily that Ellie Kemper's character wasn't in the trailer. I wanted to check out her test. Tom. I did miss her as well. She's never in things enough. She was barely in Bridesmaids. Well, a little Kemper goes a long way. What? Dun, 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 dun. Some actors come out and do performance art jokes from the script. Then Jonah Hill comes out and does a few similar ones while his eyes bulge. I nudge the nine-year-old beside me and go, Do you see this as a payoff or contradiction to the opening scene where he improvised the Hispanic character? He's all, I'm ten now. (laughs) (laughs) Say next to Dingus, by the way. (laughs) JK. Jonah Hill has sex with Ice Cube's daughter, played by Shadow Stevens' daughter. If this actress spit out an Ice Cube, I'd fuck it. Shannon Tateman has sex with Goldie Hawn's son. Since his daughter... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did you know that was that who that was? Oh, you were being serious? No, <laughs> no what? idea. That's really Goldie Hawn. He had long blonde hair. Yeah, oh, so you weren't being serious. <laughs> no, both. That's a funny joke. Funny. If it's a funny joke, it's funny, and if it's a real fact, it's also funny. Yeah, I don't. I can't tell for sure which one is true. I think I ruined it by telling you it was true. Huh? I'm still hooked up on Shadow Stevens. But, wow, what a pull! That's the Federated guy, right? No, no, that's the guy from Short Circuit. Appropriate response. Since his daughter, yes, Tom. I have no idea what either of you is talking about. <laughs> I don't know who Shadow Stevens is. Oh, that's Fisher I've Stevens. never seen Short Circuit. Oh my God, that's even weirder than Dingus not seeing Road Warrior and Dumb and Dumber. Why would I see Short Circuit? I've seen plenty because of- Ali Sheedy's got nice software in it. Um, okay, not my bag. Yeah, I kind of agree. It's like ET but with Robot. Isn't Ali Sheedy the one in Miracle Mile? No, that's uh, Anthony uh, Edwards. Not Mary Stuart Masterson. Is it Mary Stuart Masterson, Dingus? No, it's not Mary Stuart Masterson in Miracle Mile. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah. It's Mary Stuart Masterson? Fuck yeah, bitch. Huh. All right. I thought it was Ali Sheedy. No. Ali Sheedy's not cute. Since his daughter fucked a fat white guy, Ice Cube accuses the waiter in charge of a buffet at Sizzler of racism. Then he throws food everywhere, including onto his plate. The daughter and Jonah Hill and Queen Latifah are all, I guess he's upset. Later, Ice Cube's eyebrow waits for Channing Tatum to stop saying his lines. Meanwhile, Jonah Hill goes to the college library that doesn't have any lights on because kids use the internet now, although that also uses power. Jonah Hill forgets to bring a gun to the shootout, so he texts Shannon Tately, who forgot to turn his phone off during the football game. This is like the movie. He doesn't bring a gun either, but they trick the Doug Dreelers. <laughs> they trick the Ray Tick the Doug Drillers. That's right. And win the big game and file paperwork for personal transfer by crashing a motorized football helmet into some goalposts. That's how they do the paperwork. In case you missed me saying that part, Tom. All right, so at this point, the movie's over, right? The crowd cheers and rushes the field and hoists the goalposts on their shoulders and do a few victory laps until they all burn to death and collapse under its weight. The end? No? No. Oh, all right, all right, go on. Sorry. We're getting there. Okay. Everybody goes separately to spring break for another shootout. The drug right. dealers <laughs> drug dealers forget they took Ice Cube hostage and also forget to shoot Shannon Tatum and Jonah Hill in the face while they're dangling from the helicopter. Jonah Hill's all, hey, dude, dude, where's my car reference again when you throw this grenade? Channing Tatum throws the grenade. 
the drug dealers forget to notice the grenade. Woodchippers all, something ironic that the grenade cuts off in mid-sentence. Eventually, the grenade goes off and some CG extras, the second unit screen cap, give a CG cheer. A newspaper headlines all, exploding helicopter, savior of city. The credit shows some posters with comically different numbers on them. In the last one, Jonah Hill and Taylor Shandling are wearing space helmets. There aren't any more jokes after that, so I exit the theater. I watch the teenage esters sweep up jujubes and reflect on the miracle that is man. The end, Tom. Oh, you didn't stay for the button, though, did you? <clears throat> what was it? It was uh, Rob Riggle. Is that his name, Dingus? Yeah. There's a weird little scene with Rob Riggle and the, the lesser Franco brother. Dave. Dave, yeah. This- Stephen Baldwin and Frank. I was <laughs> very good. Yeah. No, how dare you? How dare you? He's at least the William, the John Murray of the Frank. <laughs> I like things. What was it? Rob Riggle does what? <laughs> he uh, says, uh, "I'm late." What? It's just a weird, uncomfortable little scene with the two of them spooning. Yeah, they're spooning, and Rob Riggle says, "I'm late," and it's <laughs> kind of funny. His lip quivers. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of good, actually. Yeah. Good work. Uh, all right, so uh, let's see, 22 Jump Street. Um, it sounds like you, you were not on board with this whole idea of replaying everything. I mean, it was very meta, mm-hmm. very self-aware about all that. Sounds- yeah. Go ahead. Well, well, in the first movie, they had all that too, but there were also jokes also, and they were playing characters in the first movie, and in this they're kind of playing themselves in the movie, like filming it mm-hmm. for the whole movie. Did it strike you as one of those... Uh, like Ocean's 12 things where people just showing up to redo stuff they've previously done, just kind of goofing off, not really invested in making it good. Like, was it that kind of uh Well, that's the joke of the movie. So it's tough to judge because it's kind of like they're trying to make sure they don't have to make a third one. <laughs> <laughs> Mission not accomplished. Right. Yeah, see? Now... So yeah, I don't know, but it might, I felt like Neighbors, where I felt a little. Ooh. I felt. I wondered if my expectations were too high going in, because mm-hmm. Twenty One Jump Street had the element of surprise, and I didn't really know those writers before. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of just had good. Like I liked all the jokes in that movie, and in this one, it seemed like a lot of the joke was how lame the movie and like how lame sequels are. Like how it's like the jewel of the Nile of the Twenty One Jump Street franchise, but it took an hour and a half to make that point. I don't know. I kind of like parts of it though. I just didn't laugh as much as I was hoping. Okay, uh, so real quick, uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, we know from the Lego Movie, uh, both the Twenty One Jump Street movies. Don't they have one other movie, Dingus? I thought they did, but I forget what it is. That's yeah. not what this podcast is about. <laughs> Knowledge. <laughs> they have, uh, the the one that I like that you guys haven't seen is Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. right. Yeah, that one. And they didn't do the sequel? No, they did Cloudy too. Okay, so they oh, so five movies. Gone. Okay, good. All right. Um, all right, well, Dingus, as the uh, the Phil Lord and Christopher Miller expert on this podcast, how did you feel about it? I fucking love this movie. Whoa, 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 Dingus. It's not an R-rated <laughs> podcast. You make me like it. Just because it's an R-rated movie, <laughs> there might be children listening. I was exhausted after seeing it. I laughed so hard. I th- I fucking love it. I, oh, 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 I, there I, he goes again. I'm sorry. I I fu- I mean freaking freaking fucking. I gotta freaking. come see movies with you guys. More. I fucking don't freaking loved it. Um, I just ah oh, god, good lord. I loved everything they were doing. I don't think it has. I don't think it has that. Um, uh, 
Oh, jeez. Uh, what's the movie you just referenced with George Clooney, that one? Like Ocean's oh, oh, Ocean's 12, 12 like yeah. When, when you bring back the actors, the, the high-paid actors from a previous movie to do a sequel, and you get a sense they're just kind of phoning it in. No, in that, it's not just they're phoning in. It's that it, it really feels like they just want to take a break and go out to Italy to somebody's villa and fuck around. Um, this doesn't feel like that at all. It, it, I mean, the, the chemistry between these two dudes is so amazing. Uh, I just... Every time they're together, I love it. I just love this movie so much. And uh, man, I'm I, I'm cra- I'm crazy about this movie. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. Uh, I, I would certainly uh, I'm with Dingus as, as far as the chemistry, but Kelly, I'm kind of with you as far as the actual movie behind content. It. the content. Very good. Um, I I the, I love the first one, of course, uh, but. The, the chemistry that these guys have and how the movie just lets them kind of play around, it still totally works for me. But I do wish that there had been more of a movie structure around that playing around. I kind of don't mind that there wasn't. I would heartily recommend this to anyone who enjoyed the first one. Um, but it did feel like they they leaned way too heavily on this idea of, hey, we're doing a sequel. Let's joke about the sequel. <laughs> this kind of meta, very self-aware humor. Uh, I could have done with maybe about half as much as was in there. Um, it felt like an off day in the writer's room, and the first movie didn't feel like that. It felt like a Monday morning when nobody's awake really wants to be there, which is how I feel all week. But, but it's also, though, an example of just how chemistry really can transcend material that's not necessarily – and I wouldn't say it's not strong because I think these guys are really talented writers. You know, this is this is a way better comedy than something like Neighbors. Neighbors just is, seems so completely inept on so many levels. I never got that sense here. Just that it, it was really hitting one note a little bit too hard, and most of the time that it connected with that note. I just wish it had tried for a few other notes as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned the, the lack of, of Ellie Kemper. Uh, I. I I, so, I I kind of feel that it's it's a bit of a crime that this movie was almost stolen by an actress named Jillian Bell, yeah. who I loved her in. She had a little tiny part in Eastbound and Down, where she's oh. a very disapproving neighbor who basically all of her scenes are with Katie Mixon. She's got a few with Danny McBride, but it's basically her, I don't remember her, on her that. participation in Eastbound and Down is to look on disapprovingly at Katie Mixon getting drunk at a water park. And and Jillian Bell was so good at that. I remember watching this actress and thinking, she's really funny. I really like her. I want to see more of her. And they, they did a little bit more with her in the series. But I, when, when she showed up in this and I thought she was just going to be a bit part, you know, I was glad to see her. But I was so overjoyed that they they played so much with her, and they made her be the villain. They really let her uh, carry some of the movie later on. Um, and I kind of wish there had been more of that sort of generosity with some of the other characters. Peter Stormari, felt like they didn't do much with him. Mm. I was a little embarrassed for Ice Cube. I mean, he's doing his shtick, I guess, but they didn't. Uh. Um, and, and Queen Latifah, I mean, if you have her, yeah, what's oh my God, thing? use her more. Um, She's like Terry Gard, Dumb and Dumber, spoiler alert. But I thought Jonah was off. Really? How so? Because I oh, go ahead, explain. Yeah. The octopus part, like, mm-hmm. it's, I he's it, I don't know. It just seemed like a really weirdly edited. Like he's all, oh, it's it's squirting in my mouth, and then that was I don't know. I like I thought the octopus was stealing the scene from. <laughs> that was a weird bit. So Dinga says, uh, did did that early like little actiony scene? See, that, that seemed like a weird note for me. And I didn't get his character in the movie. Well, it was in the first movie I did, and their dynamic. 
The octopus all. seemed like a weird noise. Is that what you're saying? Or just that, that whole that whole truck sequence. That chasing. whole truck sequence, and then fighting on the, and then the the weird f- physics comedy. Like it was this. You're in cartoon reality when they yeah. a thing where he hits the beam, and then Channing Tatum whips around on the cord. Uh, and I laughed at that, but I was like, oh, okay, is this is this movie going to have that? It was as good as the chickens in the first one, though. That was really funny. Yeah, yeah right, 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 exactly. Right, yeah. Right. Um, so it was a weird note to start on, and I was a little worried, but it found its footing pretty quickly in terms of what it was going to do. Um, so I kind of agree with you there. But as far as calling uh, uh, Jonah Hill off, I kind of feel like they don't have characters beyond their chemistry, and I'm okay with that. But in the first movie, they I understood their dynamic, and Jonah Hill was supposed to be the uptight. I don't know. Did they? Were they? Maybe it was lazier in the first movie that I remember, but. Like, they had switched classes, and Jonah Hill was in the drama class, but he played Peter. <laughs> well, that was kind of the joke in the first movie. Right. That the jock is going to be the depressed, unpopular one, and the unpopular geek guy is going to be the merry, popular character. And that, that was kind of their joke. Here, it seemed like the joke was focused on this idea of them as a couple, and the, the breakup and the get-together. But- this idea about let's have an open investigation. That, that seemed more the focus of the overarching joke than any stuff about you know which one of them is nerdy and which one of them is smart. Um, but well, it's, it's more about, about who's who's having fun and who isn't. I mean, that's kind of what they're. Well, and also who's like how it's reversed from how they really were in high school. While as in this, it's, no, it's college, so they wouldn't be like that. No, they, they don't have any experience with that. They're talking. I mean, what they what they state early on is uh, you had fun the last time and I didn't. Well. This time, one has fun and the other doesn't. I mean, uh, having watched the other one, and, and Tom Tom just watched it too, um, the the first one takes a lot more time to set up their characters and uh, set up their relationship. And I think that what's weird about this, for, for 22 Jump Street feeling like such a goofy what could be such a goofy throwaway movie, it really does rely upon what 21 Jump Street does. So what I love about what what Phil Lord and Chris Miller are doing is I think they're creating a piece here, and I hope they do do a third one because uh, I think the the second movie relies upon the first. And it's not to say that you can't watch the second without the first. I mean, I think there's a lot of gags in here that are hilarious and and certainly their chemistry and their ability to carry off something. I mean, Channing Tatum's comic timing is fucking amazing. Um, but so much of this relies upon the, the foundation set by that first movie. And I, I love that a, a movie this goofy, uh, for me, uh, you know, it, it relies upon something else. And it, it's just, I mean, I'm really excited about that. Well, they're clearly, yeah, it's clearly an inversion of the first movie's formula. I think that's kind of the joke as well, definitely. Uh, it's, and it's not, very, I, I mean, it's not just a joke, it's a foundation. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Watching part of the first movie again, I realize, oh, they're building on something, and they're, they're sort of relying upon us to go back to this and understand these characters and, and kind of build on this. I mean, the movie can stand alone, but it's so much richer to look at the jokes through the lens of the first movie, and, and for, for something that's this stupid, or could be this stupid, I mean, I really like that. Yeah, I kind of don't, I mean, can, can you target, like, what's something, Dingus, that you felt was richer this time? Yeah, it's better in this movie, like, yeah, one joke that's 
better in the second movie. Well, I, 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 I definitely get what you're getting at, Dingus, and I do feel like it's it's an intentional thing. Like you mentioned, who's having fun? Like before, it clearly was that you know the joke was going to be that Jonah Hill is going to have fun and Channing Tatum wasn't. And here they definitely flip that around. But in a way, I'm kind of like I don't. I, it's so, not as funny though. I don't know. Am I, I, I couldn't go with it. I mean, that, that's such a subjective thing. Like, yeah. But yeah, yeah. I do want to hear more about but, like, things. Like, what do you feel is richer having seen the, the first one in, in this movie? Um, can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, how does this movie really further what we saw in the first movie? Uh, well, or build- well, I, I mean, I could talk about gags. Like, I mean, you, you hear Peter Pan referenced in 22. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's... It happens in 21. Um, but, I mean, I mean I'm, there's a lot of gags that are set up, but I'm just talking about the way the characters are set up. The way uh, Jonah Hill goes to his parents' house, and there's that wall of pictures of him. And and he's like, it looks like I got into a car accident here. And, and so then we meet his parents in this movie, and we have some foundation of what these people are and how they've treated him in the past. I mean, I, I really like that. Right. I, I mean, just... For me, watching 21 Jump Street, it was much slower than I remember. And I loved 21 Jump Street. I I remember laughing a great deal. In 22, I, I, I left that movie and went to a second movie, but I, got, I was exhausted from laughing in 22 Jump Street. And I think that part of that is the fact that I understood uh, when Jonah Hill's parents show up, I got a sense of who those people were, and and they didn't have to set up who they were. They just show up, and then watching it again, I was like, oh yeah, that's. I mean, it, there's. I think there's a lot of like these little subtle things that uh, that the writers and the directors are setting up, um, and I don't even know if they mean to do this or if they're building on it later on. But these char- these little character things show up in this movie. And I really like that. I mean, I just don't think you see that very often. Callbacks. Yeah, because a lot of it did feel to me like, and and even though I kind of didn't like this, I found myself laughing at it. I thought it was effective. But a lot of it did kind of feel like, hey, we had Rob Riggle and Dave Frank on the first one. Let's call them back for a scene. And it felt kind of forced, but I, I, I have so much goodwill for the actors, for the first movie, uh, and I guess for the characters, that it didn't feel and, – and, and everybody was so energetic about it. I mean, even poor Dave Franco being left in the <laughs> cell back there. Um, but, but a lot of that to me did feel like what Kelly Wan just describes as a callback, um, and some of which I'm not sure I necessarily needed. Um, but it seemed like solid comedic – Footing here, here, Dingus is where I really want to call these guys out for really talented writing, and I wish there had been a little bit more of this because I think it was awfully subtle, and I think it, it comes a little bit too quietly. You know, not, not, so I, I want to call out a couple of what I feel are almost literary jokes. These guys pepper in some really nice little when when I don't uh, want to call, but. Well, when when uh, when Jonah Hill says that the Lamborghini poster is a touch childish, and Channing Tatum makes the joke about about pedophilia, you know that's kind of a literary joke. Touch, that's kind of that's a that's a really sly bit of wordplay. Um, that meet cute bit. I mean, that wasn't sly. That was very upfront and center. But I love the wordplay. That meet cute. The the one of my favorite wordplay bits in here is that Plainview Red Herring test. Yes. 
Oh uh, my God, that was that uh, kind of that's some really inspired writing that is kind of way more subtle than most of what's in the rest of the movie. Um, so, so some of those, I really do feel like the fact that those guys got these jokes. I can imagine a studio guy somewhere at some point looking at this and saying, "No, let's cut this joke and maybe have a fart joke or something." Do we need the red more up at the end, <laughs> right? Something like that. But I did love how they did have some some really sly little touches with wordplay like that. And I don't remember a, I was gonna, I don't remember really much of any of that in the first movie. Um, so I get the sense that these guys are really talented and clever, and they're able to slip some kind of subtle stuff into the script that I really appreciated. And I like where their head's at. Like I liked the video game thing at the end and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I like them making fun of how lame sequels are. Mm-hmm. And like the football game I liked, I like the helicopter. Like I like where their heads are at. Mm-hmm. But I felt like it didn't have any sustained bits the way what? like Bridesmaids does. I've decided that you need that for comedy. You have one thing that just goes on forever. Like, when you say sustained, do you mean over the course of the movie or just yeah. in one scene? Yeah, you got to have one thing like Ice Cube's eyebrow, but it's got to be like more epic. <laughs> Give us an example from Bridesmaids. Um. Kristen Wiig's face when she eats that thing when she wants to puke, and also the one-up bit when they're like doing it. <laughs> uh, let's see, what would be a sustained thing here? Because the sustained <laughs> thing is Jillian uh, Bell. Uh, what's her name? Jillian. What's her name? Jillian Bell. Yep. Jillian Bell constantly talking about how old he is. You know. Yeah. Well, that yeah. give you something for your weird old face. Oh my God! And her little riff about uh, when you're playing pinochle at the old folks, or, or she has one because they're little throwaway lines, and she's got yeah. one, like her her ultimate one is one super long, weird like a joke you'd hear in a '40s movie or something. I, I love that. That's, again, just another really slight she's spot thing. on. Yeah, and her physical comedy is great. Yeah, she's the fight scene. Yeah, that whole "Are you gonna kiss me?" thing that was so freaking yeah. adorable. And another sustained bit is the carrying shoes home on the sh- walk of shame home. I mean, come on. No, that's not what I mean by sustained bit. What do you mean? A drawn out awkward running gag. Yeah, I'm talking about a long sequence where it's just like you hold on something. That only in a comedy would you hold that long. Well, only in a comedy where they really trust the material. Right. And that's the thing. And I, and I, I kind of feel like you're being a little unfair here, Kelly Wan, because it, it's, it's not that kind of movie. Exactly. Well, well how about they're not Channing Tatum running around no. saying, he fucked his daughter. He fucked her daughter. Oh, my God. See, that, I didn't feel worked. Like, I loved – by the way, so here's the thing. On the page and in the movie, I don't think that worked. But God bless Channing Tatum for, for committing 110% to that scene. I love – and that, that by the way, it is kind of in a nutshell why this movie works is regardless of the material – and the material is good – even when something like that doesn't work, Channing Tatum is going to try to make it work. Oh, yeah. He's going to yeah, he's good. and they're going to leave the camera on him. They're going to try to make it work, too. I mean, I, I loved – even though I was like, okay, this is kind of not working for me. It's a little bit too much, but bless your heart for really committing. So why, why do you think that doesn't work? Because from the moment that little weird like coin drop ding happens when he's looking at the picture and right. – it takes him a while to get it, and it goes ding. That right, there, right, because that right there is the joke, that it took him a while to And we've already right. seen – I just keep freaking out about it, right. so it's kind of like – Well, that's another one. The sustained bit, I, I like I that either. too. I love Ice Cube enough that right. I'm happy to watch him trash a buffet. I don't know that it really <laughs> serves the material well. Very unmotivated. I, you're right, but I was entertained by it. Um, so, Kelly, one, I guess in support of what you're saying, where they did draw things out, I kind of felt like they'd already made yeah. a joke – 
and drawing it out didn't necessarily make it better. No, saying, something like in Bridesmaids that definitely made it better. I'm saying execution's everything, and that's my point. Is like when it did have the drawn out in this, it wasn't funny, but it should have been, and it was it was it was filmed as long as it should have been to be funny. But something's missing. Well, it's more nutmeg. Whatever's missing, though, I just and I, I'm with Dingus here. I just have so much goodwill for these actors and these the, the, this writing and directing team that you know what it doesn't bother me so much. Especially when we we have to sit through neighbors. Yeah, I seriously, know. dude. Don't hell thinks the moment Dave Franco, Franco shows up, I, I'm immediately thinking about neighbors. Dave Franco shows up like, oh, I even forgot he was in that. Oh my god, uh, I wasn't uh, even thinking of that because it's I same character. That's how exactly. That's how much. That's how little that movie registered with me. Like, yeah. I completely forgot poor Dave Franco was in that. But the moment I I thought a moment he shows up. I started thinking about, oh, that's how this, that's how you get it right. This is how you get it right. There's, this is a frat party that gets it right. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, Wait, man. what frat party gets it right in 22 Jump Street? Yeah. They go through this whole weird frat party sequence and they do, they do one. this constant and, and, uh, sustained, uh, split screen thing that, that shows up time and time again in this movie. Um, <laughs> Which, uh, which, <laughs> there's another extended sequence, <laughs> which was fine, but not anywhere near no. as good as the, not right. even near as good as the drug trip in the first movie. It's I not thought. as good, and it costs ten times as much. And is that the joke? Okay, fuck. <laughs> Something. Why am I not laughing? Why am I not laughing? Uh, what kind of audience did you have, Kelly Holland? Uh, there was like an old couple sitting a few rows down in front of me, and in the Seven Dumber. Preview at one point, uh, Jim Carrey finger bangs an old lady, and then dust comes out when he pulls his finger out, and the old man went, sensitive stuff. And I thought he meant vaginas in general when he said it, but I think he just meant. Huh, that's an interesting. Uh, oh, and then they saw the sex tape trailer, and then right afterwards he went, what's it called? That looks good. What, was he <laughs> given a vagina? Who, Jason Siegel? Yeah. Never mind. What was your question, Tom? What was my audience like? <laughs> I saw it, I ditched work to see it and saw it with uh, kids who were stoned who were ditching school. So <laughs> friendly crowd to see the movie, and uh, it, I, it was it had that thing that I like where it's like you're just different people laughing at different things, which is what I liked about this is the end. So it has kind of like weird, quiet jokes like Dingus is saying, like good throwaways. But Julian Bell was the only one who was fucking throwing fastballs. Fuck! And I did miss Ellie Kemper. I mean, what I said before about Ellie Kemper is, I think if I saw a whole movie with her, my head might explode. I don't know that I could take... All parts would explode. Yeah, exactly. Well, I wasn't going to go there, but fair enough. Um, Could could we stand a buddy cop movie with her and Melissa McCarthy? uh, Wait, is that a thing, Dingus? No, I'm just making that up. Uh, Could you make that happen? Sure. I'll call it The Cool. Uh, I was a little uncomfortable to discover that we mentioned on the end of the podcast last week uh, how happy we were with how Jonah Hill was reacting in the wake of calling a paparazzi a – I don't just say the word – calling a paparazzi a a, a faggot. And uh, it got caught on tape, and he had been doing the the rounds and apologizing and saying, look, that's really inappropriate – um, and then seeing that it was a joke in the movie and, and kind of thinking, maybe the cynical side of me, that he felt obligated to do that because it was a joke in the movie. What's in the movie? That's well, one of the hitchmen no, calls so. it. There's, there's two other weird. weird. One of the hitchmen calls a, him a, a, a faggot, you know, and they make that joke about it. that's an inappropriate word. Uh, we, you know, we can't, I mean, that's the whole joke. Oh. And that it, if it had come out that, 
you know, that this, when this, literally two weeks before the movie, this tape comes out of Jonah Hill calling someone this, if it would have been more conspicuous that he didn't, you know, that, that this is referenced directly in the movie. Um, so, I, yeah, so go ahead, Dingus, what were you saying? Do you I was going to say that... <laughs> Just say it. I, I was going to say that there's a couple other things. In, I mean, there's there's a Tracy Morgan joke and a Maya Angelou joke, and and both of the... I mean, Maya Angelou's since died, and Tracy Morgan... Oh my god, I forgot oh, about that. It's the curse of 22 Jump Street. It's the new Poltergeist. And well, Tracy Morgan was in a horrible accident, so they, they don't they haven't capitalized on any of that. No, 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 I'm not talking about capitalizing. I'm I'm talking about it would look all the more I mean, you don't need to come out and apologize for making a Maya Angelou joke a month after she's died, and nobody could have foreseen the Tracy Morgan thing. But Jonah Hill ignoring this uh lurid tape of him calling a paparazzi a faggot, I, I think they couldn't have gotten away with that. I I don't know. And it just seemed uh-huh. weird. Right, because normally, you know... Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Normally, you just ignore something like that. People get angry at paparazzis, and they ignore it. It goes away. Sometimes even punch them, and they settle it out of court, you know? But the fact that Jonah Hill made a big public to-do about having used the word, it made me wonder if this was something he did specifically because he knew they were going to joke about it in the movie. And not joke inappropriately. I mean, that's that's the appropriate Mm. way to, to treat, you know, using that word. There's a great scene, by the way... You guys haven't seen this movie. Uh, Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell in, I think it's called Hit and Run. There's a, there's a great joke, a very similar joke like that in Hit and Run, where she takes Dax Shepard to task for calling someone like a homo or just saying his car looks gay or something like that. And it's a great little scene, and it's very appropriate for the times. Um, so I just wondered, you know, we were really happy about Jonah Hill doing this and, and reacting this way, but part of me wondered, well, did he feel the need to do that because there's a joke about it in the movie? No, I, 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 don't I, I see what you're saying. Uh... It's possible. Yeah. I mean, because you know, Alec Baldwin got trashed for doing that. I mean, he's kind of a psychotic person anyway. But I mean, he lost. He had to give up his show on whatever network he was on, or yeah, NPR, or whatever, uh, because he did the same thing. Um, oh, was it? A pro- uh, was it the? I thought. I, I, I get I get confused of all the, about all the things that Alec Baldwin. Because every story is what somebody somebody said or twittered, and then. They go, oh, sorry, J.K. didn't know, and then we everybody um, did and talks about it. What I was going to say is, I know that he. There's a thing where he, Alec Baldwin calling his daughter a fat pig on a message machine came out. Uh, but was there also some sort of a slur? At a, he made it a paparazzi dingus. Yeah, yeah, he did the same thing. I mean, ah, he, okay. Uh, and and the guy was, you know, probably a, a homosexual reporter, and and he made comments about that, that were clearly homophobic um and then he backed <laughs> off of them and then he lost his job from doing it i mean okay. just i mean it was an npr show but whatever um so there's there's that climate and i'm not saying there's anything right or wrong about that but i i think that's more what you know actually i don't even know if i want to support what i just said i think jonah hill was being sincere i mean i think that uh, oh, I do too. By the way, I'm not questioning his, his sincerity. I, I feel that you know when he says that and it gets thrown around at him, that he he feels bad about that. But the fact that they made a to do about it, that oh, I went see, around I and did the rounds, because uh, I, I yeah I I don't doubt that that Jonah Hill and and Alec Baldwin. I mean, nobody in Hollywood. I say nobody. It, it, most people in people actually in, in the arts. It, it's really weird when people in the arts are homophobic, uh, specifically. Yeah. Because they're you, you know you can't be involved in the arts without 
maybe this is kind of weird to say, but without being exposed to people who are gay and that kind of lifestyle, and that's fine because it's more permissive, as it should be. I mean, there's this kind of progressive element to being an actor, to being a writer, to being in dance, to being in in, in museums or, or whatever. There's When you're involved in a creative drive as a, as a lifestyle, I think the odds are greater that you're going to have more of a progressive view towards human relationships and human sexuality, and, and that's as it should be, I, I feel. But when you're in the arts, you tend to say – you know, you you cut things a little looser because you're, you know, if if you're if you're an actor, you're a comedian, and you're always saying shit because you want to see what kind of reactions it'll get from people. Like you're already in that mode. And, and I do feel, by the way, that's kind of why this joke in Twenty Two Jump Street, where one of the henchmen says "faggot" and Channing Tatum is all, "What did you just say?" I, that's a, that's a great thing to do in a movie. I it's also that. a callback. It's what Dingus is talking about that he liked because in Twenty One Jump Street. He calls the guy at the beginning of Trump Street, and then they're all, Whoa, Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Telly right. Exactly. And so, I, I think that kind of – He doesn't call him a faggot. He just – he says, you know, that's – what you were listening to is gay, and the guy's like, right. oh, so you punched me because I'm gay. Right, I'm gay. right, exactly, right. And it becomes like a hate crime joke. And, right, right. Uh, yeah. And, it, and then they go to the principal's office for it, and then well, the guys you – know, You know, furthermore, what's what's great about this movie is that it, it's – I think it's a stained joke. It's, it's, it's a suggestion that these two dudes – Actually, are developing a relationship that's be that is supposed to sort of be a corollary of uh, a romantic relationship. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, sure. That's, that's well, what's going on. It's it's not just a couple of throwaway gay jokes. It's that they're talking about who's going to have a, a sort of a soulmate relationship and be in a relationship together. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's very sly, actually. And it's kind of the, the logical just, conclusion of that whole bromance angle. I mean, that's where it kind yeah, of goes. But it, right, it, and it goes beyond – but the, the term bromance kind of gives you the idea of buddy cop. And I think it goes a little beyond that here. Well, we did that in the first movie, but there was other stuff going on too. And then in this, it's kind of like the the four plot. Is that what that's called, Tom? What's the opposite of a subplot? Just plot? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Context, text, the subtext. Post, the post plot. Well, in a way, that is kind of like it, it. It's kind of as as a movie it is portraying a relationship as a counterpart to a romantic relationship, even though they're not they're not kissing and making out. Oh. Uh, right. I mean, it, and, and I find that valuable. You know what? Let's. Oh, yeah. They're different. People have different kinds of relationships, and uh, yeah, I I, uh, I I think it's it's funny the way they play with the stuff here, with the the being in therapy, <laughs> holding hands. And stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So oh, yeah on, on a much larger level, I, you know, I, I, I love that kind of play that they're doing with this, and it definitely is from the first movie as well. I feel like there just wasn't enough college jokes for my. I don't know. Um, like I like and I don't like at the same time. Like, okay, so Shannon Tatum's is with Goldie Hawn's son. Here's another bit that I felt was I – was, I was kind of disappointed myself that I didn't like it, and I wonder if there's maybe a problem with me. Um, Patton Oswalt's little professorial – I did that either. What the yeah, hell? I was like – There's no – and he's never back in the movie, so was he just – what was he – I don't understand that bit either. I don't understand what its function was. Dingus? Uh, it, that didn't do it for me either. Sorry. I, I, can't, I can't go along with that one. Did, uh, did I, I, I really like Patton Oswalt. Yeah, yeah. I, I love his comedy. I like him in a lot of movies. This just felt like, hey, let's call this guy in and let him riff for a little while. And it, it, he very well could have been in one room and everybody else in another. Right, right. Uh, not unlike his appearance in uh, that Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Um, oh, 
Ah, uh, what? He's in that thing? Yeah, he has a weird appearance. It's like, hey, we got Patton Oswalt, let's use him, and it's this just weird kind of misguided scene. Um, He's funny in most things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. So how did we feel about um, – we've made jokes before. What was the – oh, yeah, so the other woman – they go to the Bahamas. They do their third act. Let's just take a trip to the Bahamas and shoot there. Um, so this movie kind of does the big finale with the football game, and then it's going to tack on – I don't know. And then it's going to put a third – an additional act set in uh, – they shoot this in Puerto Rico. I think it's supposed to be set in somewhere in Mexico. Uh, how do we feel about that bit? Uh, it was true to the bit. It was true to the gag. Hmm? Like it's – it was, a, it was a crowd of people on a beach cheering um, an exploding helicopter. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, and a Lamborghini chase. You know, yeah. It can't have been cheap. But it was weird how Ice Cube... Wait, who hits... Uh... Oh, yeah, Shadow Stevens' daughter hits Jillian Bell. That seemed like kind of a ripoff. Uh, who is Shadow Stevens? I'm not understanding this joke. He's a DJ. Why do, why do you keep bringing up Shadow Stevens? Because that's his daughter. So I didn't like who's, her. Who's his daughter? Who are you talking about? The black chick that Jonah Hill has sex with. That's Shadow Stevens' daughter? Yes. I think okay, I every, just, time, every time we say his name, I just hear his weird voice. At least you guys know who that is. I have no idea who that even is. Um, okay, imagine imagine somebody named Shadow Stevens where the W is replaced by him. Ah. And having the hottest daughter. Well, so that that woman was very attractive, but oh could not hold a candle to Brie Larson in the first movie. Uh, yeah. That was another area where I was kind of disappointed, and and why it made it so much easier for Jillian Bell to steal the movie. I think, um, you know, she's pretty certainly, but I, what happened to Brie Larson's character? What's yeah, you know what? She's dead. Probably want. Did she not make it into college? Is she not in the police force? Why didn't she stay with with Jonah Hill? Jonah what Hill. happened? Yeah, it seems to be re- relevant to where he's at now sexually with the new chick, you would think. Like, did it end traumatically? Like, even Deuce Bigelow, uh, <laughs> wife gets eaten by a shark. So that mm-hmm. makes sense. Is that true, Kelly Wand, or are you making that up like the Shadow Stevens thing? <sighs> Maybe she just wound up with Karen Allen. Maybe they're in a movie together somewhere. I'd fuck a shark that ate Shadow Stevens' daughter. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees, and I'm caught in between, counting Kelly Wand, you're so easy. I know. You're so easy. Wait, it takes a little more than high cheekbones to have a compelling lead actress. No, the lead was Julian Bell. She's in it. Okay, correct. But I can't get those, I can't get... Black girls. I don't know what it is. Uh, okay. okay um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you should see there's a great scene in Anchorman yeah. 2 where uh-huh. Will Ferrell has dinner with his black girlfriend's family. That seems like uh, you might enjoy that scene. It's hilarious. See, even, he can. even that character can get him. I don't get what I'm doing wrong. I wouldn't wish Why Anchorman I? 2 on, on my worst enemy. You Much mean, less you, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't trust you, but comedy is very subjective. Like, Dingus loved 22 Jump Street, and you hated it, and, you know. Uh, don't tell the listeners that. The listeners who are now tuning in just for the 3x3. Three three, That's a spoiler? Maybe they skipped the 22 Jump Street talk. I didn't hate it. Yes, yeah, it's, an, it's, an, it's not even a spoiler. It doesn't count. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> Kelly Wan hated 22 Jump Street. Nah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I don't get upset when someone says I did. <laughs> so let that be a lesson to you. All right. Uh, let's do a three by three instead of talking about Twenty Two uh, Jump Street. Dingus, what is this week's topic? This is your favorite uh, art depictions in movies, depictions of artworks. Okay. I think you said visual. It had to be visual. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, visual. It can't be like, uh, oh, this is my favorite book. I love books and poems. This is uh, this is visual. This is visual arts, like paintings. Um, I was kind of going for things that are created within the movie, but it doesn't have to be that. What? Uh, I certainly didn't do that. What'd you say? I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that's news to me. Um, what that it was created. That it was created within the movie. I must not have been uh, listening. No, no. What, what I was say, what I said last week was, um, I that's what I kind of wanted to reach for things that are created within the movie, but I'm certainly not going to restrict it to that. Yeah, none of mine qualify. All right, dead guy. As what? Uh, he he said he was thinking about restricting it to things that were created within the movie over the course of the movie. In which case, uh, we would all be doing biopics of like Jackson Pollock and Picasso and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or or like uh, you know, just this is a movie about a fictitious painter and he's painting a picture in the movie. Um, but I I really didn't think that that would sustain. So it's it's artworks, of specifically visual artworks that you know can be sculptures. But I was thinking more. Uh, Paintings and that kind of thing, right. but it can be either one. Um, uh, Only those. Only, Only those. Yes, not cars. <laughs> what about a sandwich at Subway? That's all yeah, right. Yeah, a sandwich with a cute in it would certainly qualify because <laughs> they are sandwich artists. I like that joke. You know, I remember a time when I didn't know that meat cute was an actual term, and you guys introduced me to it uh, in a three by three, and then this movie. Has since learned, I presume from you guys, that that is a real thing. Right. And for a dollar extra, you can have a double meet cute. Meet cute generally involves like them bumping heads. I'll say. Which actually does happen in. It's adorable. Yeah. Uh, all right, so Kelly Wand, you're doing next week's 3x3, three three, so why don't you start us off with uh, your... Although that means you're not compatible, really. If you bump heads, it means your heads, you're like, you're too similar. And so it'd be like dating yourself, like those twins. What was your question? Your uh, question? Yeah, yeah. What, what do you got for us for your number three pick for, for this week's three? All right, I have a question if something counts. Okay. Let's, uh, and I don't want to get – but I don't want to get locked into it. If I ask the question and the answer is no, then I get to say something else. So you're basically still working on your list. Can we no, assume I'm saying that the answer is, is no. <laughs> well, just give you an answer. Yeah, sorry. All right, I'm going to ask you yes or no. <laughs> Can we pre-answer your question? Prinzer. Uh Does the penis in the Little Mermaid movie poster count? I think three by three right. is generally relating to movies and not the movie posters. I know there's one exception. We did do a three by three on movie posters, but All right, I have okay. Your, your favorite subliminal sexual references in Disney movies can certainly be a three by three in the future. Why you got to bring sex into it? It's just a, it's a penis. It's like Why you got to bring sex into it? <laughs> It would work out a mermaid anyway, so it's not sex. Uh, my number three is the friends and neighbors painting. Why wouldn't it work on a mermaid? Seriously, <laughs> have you never seen a dolphin have sex? Whoa, 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 dingus! What? Have you? Yeah. Ew. With with what? Gross. Another dolphin. Ew. Oh, uh, have you never been to the Long Beach Aquarium? You don't. They don't show them having sex at the aquarium, do they? <laughs> they don't it doesn't really to, matter which. They aquarium. don't get to show they them. Don't. They just come around and do what they're going to do. 
Yeah, they should tint the glass or something at those moments. Oh, they actually, have those some were, provision. I'm sorry, those were sharks. They don't get to show them. Huh. Wait, sharks uh, don't. Yeah, I've, I've seen shark sex. Boom. Ew. Suck it. I thought they laid eggs like aliens. Uh, sharks are mammals. <laughs> like dinosaurs <laughs> and turtles. <laughs> right? Uh, I think whale sharks actually, don't they lay eggs? I might be what do they that. lay them in? <laughs> Nests? Look, let's agree to a marine biology podcast. We'll be showing a bit. <laughs> Free Willy couldn't sleep with Orca. All right, here's a question for That's you guys. Name. Here's a question for you guys. Yeah. Where did Matt Hooper work from? The Sea World in nope. San Diego. Nope. Okay. No, no, it was MIT. Nope. Really? You guys don't know this? Dingus probably. Uh, Pepperdine. Pepperdine. It was Pepperdine. Seriously? He, he works for, from uh, the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. You guys really don't know where Matt Hooper and Jaws works. You didn't know last week in the 3x3 what kind of ice cream Brody's son requested at the hospital. You're telling me you don't even know where Matt Hooper works. Was it the same answer? <laughs> he comes from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Woods Hole? I didn't name I it. I did not name it. That's what Wait, it's why are, are you watching two minutes of Jaws a week to just fuck with a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> this week's two minutes. it's played on Louisiana? Furthermore, Kelly Wan, I don't need to. Ooh. I can have any two minutes of Jaws in my head on demand. I'm like that. Uh, uh, okay, what's uh, who says this line in the novel? Uh, I got a mouth to feed mine. <laughs> I don't know the book. I didn't read the Jaws book, please. Wrong. I'm not going to read the novelization of a movie, Kelly Wand. Robert Benchley. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> who, who appears in Jaws, by the way. The only reason I know is Peter Benchley is because he, he's one of the actors in Jaws. The yeah, movie. he's one of the reporters. Mm, I wouldn't call him a reporter so much as a newscaster, an announcer guy. Oh, my God. What's he reporting on? The sharks. <laughs> Family. How come the Jaws 2 didn't eat them on the way when they were swimming back? Uh, when who was swimming? I don't. I don't. I don't do Jaws. Brody and Hooper. Okay, well, I don't do Jaws sequels. I saw Jaws two before I saw Jaws. Ouch! I had a drive-in when I was like two. That's weird, man. You did it that. Is weird. Totally wrong. And then I went the other, and then yeah, and then I saw Jaws after. And I went, well, this is kind of a little better, huh? It's like kids who see the Star Wars prequels first. Everyone honked when the shark dies. Is that a spoiler? <laughs> That's why we don't go to drive-ins. <laughs> the movie is like a drive-in because all the kids are on a boat watching Brody bang on shit, just like we did. And this thing broke down, so the guy had to get up on the screen and like bang on it to get it to work. It was like the days, man. Let's yeah. through the screen and bash and party. So yeah, Penis Little Mermaid. Uh, wow. No, oh, that first... was your number three. All right. No. Oh, the... oh, it wasn't your number three. Okay. It was the Friends and Neighbors painting. The uh, why don't you tell us about it? Okay. All the characters look at it and then go, is it fucked up? And they're all, no, it's just you. And then at the what end, is it a painting of? Where does it, what scene? I don't understand. I don't so there, there are multiple scenes and he, uh, every character gets to pair off with, with, with uh, Nastasia Kinski. Oh. Yeah, they each pair off with Nastasia Kinski and look at the painting. Don't they? Oh, pair off with her. Am I misremembering it, Kelly Wand? Yeah, that's what happens. 
So I, I, we explained it together. Uh, I don't recall the painting, though, and I'm wondering... You don't see it. You never th- see yeah, it. Yeah, Neil LeBute shot it from the perspective of the painting, so they're basically looking not at the, into the camera, but the camera is situated where the painting is, so you never actually see the painting. Um, I thought you said, though, that you, like, one of your choices was like, oh, it's not in the movie, but it's the laser gun they all talk about in Phantom Menace. Something like that? Um, or I the ice cream and... All of mine, I could show you, I could call up a Google image of all of my choices. You could not call up a Google image, and I could be mistaken about it. We're the image. We're the Google image, and they're looking at us. So basically a picture of you, me, and Dengus would be what Nastasia Kinski and each of the cast members is looking at? It's like favorite trunk in Pulp Fiction. Uh, Kelly Wand, have you seen Neil Labute? did a movie called uh, Some Velvet Morning. That's his most recent movie. Uh, yeah, I was eyeballing it and going, hmm. Oh, my God. I hated it. Until oh, wait, somebody's in it I like. It's only two people. It's Stanley Tucci and Alice Eve. And yeah, Alice Eve, by the way. Oh, you said it was the best thing you watched all week. Oh, yeah, hold on. So, so Alice Eve, uh, I only knew from the Star Trek movie. And it's, it's awesome seeing her hold her own with Stanley Tucci. She's so, out of our league, Tom. Uh, oh, that's right. She's in that. I kind of want to see that because I like Jay Barrow-Kell. He's in it, right? Her sidekick's kind of hotter than she is, almost. Right? Ooh, that's weird. That's uh, not how it's supposed to work. Um, but anyway, so here's here's the progression of me watching some Velvet Morning. Okay, this is interesting. Mm, I don't know. Oh God, really? Oh, I'm gonna watch this for another forty-five minutes. Oh, for Pete's sake! Ew, gross! I hate this movie. Oh God, no! I really hate this movie. Hey, this movie's awesome. So like porno. Yeah, that right there. That right there was a. That was a reenactment in compressed time of me watching Some Velvet Morning. Uh, and it really is Neil LeBute just – like when Neil LeBute really wants to – forgive my language – really wants to fuck with the audience, he knows how to do it. And it's one of my favorite things about Some Velvet Morning is the way that he's willing to fuck with the audience. So, Kelly Wand, you should see it. Take it. Not for you. All right. Good to know. I've been you told like- that before. <laughs> uh, I it's like Martyrs. Is it like that at all? No, no, nothing like that. Oh. Yeah. Is she naked? Um, she doesn't have to be, Kelly Wan. She's I know. a gorgeous red dress. That red dress is better than being naked. Well, you know what? Maybe I'll take No, that red dress is on par with her being naked. I just pretend it's her skin, like an under the skin, and she's just wearing a red wrinkled. You can do that. Was the velvet because it's made out of velvet? Or um, nope, her name is Velvet. Um, get uh, it? So it's like blue, uh, jasmine, and valentine. Who did you say was the girl? And Jersey. Was it? <laughs> Alice? <laughs> Alice Eve, Alice Eve, the from, one from Star Trek. From Star Trek, yes. That uh, that Damon Lindelof had to apologize for writing a scene in which she, she married Buckwad in Entourage, too. just because she got she got into her bra and panties. Right. Yeah. To, yeah. I, I I think anything though that makes Damon Lindelof have to apologize is is a a net plus for all of us moviegoers. He didn't like, apologize for Lost or Prometheus. Uh, Diggis yeah. and I, went, when we went to see uh, the movie today, there's a trailer beforehand, and we're watching <laughs> A lot of times during a trailer, we won't watch it based on, before we even really know what it is, we'll see an actor or something and think, okay, I'll want to see that, and we'll close our eyes. And what I do, and I think Diggis does the same thing, is I'll just sort of look down at my lap and have my fingers in my ears, and when I see out of the corner of my eye that it's just showing words, I'll peek up to see what the word is, because it'll say like an actor's name or who wrote it or the name of the movie, and I want to know that stuff. So a trailer comes on, and it's Liam Neeson, and it's, oh, Kim Bassinger, and then I see Adrian Brody, and I'm like, okay, sold. Whatever this is, I'm going to want to see it. So I plug my ears, and I'm looking down, and every now and then I can see a word's going to come up on the screen, and I'll look up, and it'll, it, you know, it'll have something about 
like what the movie's about, and I, I'm looking at the words. <laughs> at one point, I look up and see that it says, and I think Dingus saw this at the same time, from writer-director Paul Haggis. Ugh. And I was like, okay, whatever this is, I don't care if I see the trailer. <laughs> He's the literary equivalent of Haggis. What, what it said was, from the writer and director of Crash, and we both oh, started right. laughing. <laughs> Didn't you write direct traffic in an unrelated story? It's, it's, as soon as we, as we saw it from the writer and director of Crash, we both just took our fingers out of our ears and were like, yeah, all right, we're done. Best picture. So it's called Third Person, and it opens next week, and I have no desire to see it if Paul Haggis wrote and directed it. Right. What's it called again? Third Person. Ugh. I don't know. Lindelof's the third act specialist. All right, so Kelly Wand, uh, the the unseen painting in your friends and neighbors. Do you have a favorite? So there's, let's see, can you tell us all the pairs that look at the painting? Uh, Nisjazia Kinski and Ben Stiller are my favorite because it end, it goes south. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he's the one. He's all, yeah, it's definitely crooked. And then she's all, fuck off. Or she's not having any of it. She's not into him at all. Yeah. I don't think Jason Patrick does so well with her either, if I'm not mistaken. He doesn't do well with anyone. You know who really hits it off with her? Amy, not Amy Irving. What's her name? Amy Brenneman. <laughs> Remember how that ends up, yeah? Yeah, uh, Maybe you don't. Know, huh? Not as good as the Keener one. <laughs> Maybe you don't. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, Kelly Wan's number three is a painting we haven't seen. Um, yeah. Well, the painting... Oh, you know what it is? It's probably the painting at the beginning of the movie in the credits. While Nirvana's playing. In the opening credits, there's a painting of your friends and neighbors. I don't remember that. Oh, oh, of the... Yeah, yeah. It's it's even the movie, isn't it? Yeah, so take that. It's an interesting interpretation. My number three pick is uh, the picture of the girl on the beach in Barton Fink, which the, the joke of it is it's supposed to be like motel art. Just some crappy hotel picture, but it's really, it's really haunting. That's your signature phrase, because you. Make- <laughs> Nobody knows what you're talking about, but it's really haunting. Yes, uh, the the picture of the girl on the beach looking out um, over the waves, and of course the payoff for, for the painting at the end of the movie is just so powerful. I think because you've seen him looking at the painting wistfully and longingly, and and what I love about that actual painting. Is there something, and I don't know any art stuff. I'm completely illiterate when it comes to actual art history. When it comes to actual art history and paintings and all of that stuff. I don't know artists. I I couldn't tell you anything. But it seems to me one of the fundamental ingredients of any great work of art, like any great painting, is wondering about something. Like, like, why is Mona Lisa smiling that way? Or what, and all of mine, by the way, have this, uh, have an example of this. Uh, you know, why are those people in that diner? Uh, what, what is that, what is that kid doing with that apple? Which I'll mention in a minute. Um, but all of these, uh, there's, uh, you know, that, that painting in Barton Fink is like, holy, what is she looking at? You know, what is she staring at off this, the, outside the frame of the painting? Um, so I, I love that that element of art and, and how there's that mystery to it in the painting that Barton Fink stares at in, in his hotel room. Um, so there's my number three pick is the uh, motel art in Barton Fink. That one always kind of bugged me a little bit, although I like Barton Fink, because mm-hmm. when she sits at the end, mm-hmm. it's like she kind of contorts her body so she looks just like the chick in the painting, but it's like sort of an unnatural pose. Well, I think a lot of poses and paintings are in my number two I'll, I'll have something to say about that but right yeah uh, uh, but in rl 
I don't know. Well, it's not RL, is it, Kelly Wand? It's is it? Mm. Well, yeah, but I have to look at the actress to try to look like someone in the painting, while as it could have just been a chick on the beach, just, you know, on her back. Yeah, but it wasn't. It's a good they, point. I failed. Dingus, what's your number three pick for a uh, favorite artwork in a movie? All right, here's a quote from it. Uh, Every publisher thinks the drawings are too rudimentary, and there are too few of them, but I'm just an entertainer of children, and I like to draw. Okay. Hmm. All right, so this is from the movie uh, Door in the Floor, Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, different art in this movie. It's kind of... Uh, weird, but the one I'm going to choose is, uh, is Jeff Bridges is doing a reading of his children's book. And he's also an illustrator of the children's book as well. And he does these, uh, at first I went to look at this movie again this week because I was interested in the way he depicted Mimi Rogers in it. Um, because he has her stripped down and he does all these drawings of her and they're kind of crude. And he does this, then later in the movie you see this revelation of this, um, it's more than a sketch. It's this beautiful pencil drawing of Kim Basinger that he says he can never really get her right. He never was able to get her right. But what I really like is the um, the drawings that go with his children's book that I, that I guess he can't seem to get published um, because the drawings are too rudimentary and, and there aren't enough of them. Um, and it's this this weird drawing of. Uh, it's not the one of the of the figure who's actually opening the door, but it's the one right before that, and it's just this weird conglomeration of images. And I just love that he's drawn these images and hoped to sell them in a children's book when they look so weird and disturbing. Um, and so it's that artwork that he's done, and he's got it on this slideshow behind him as he's reading the book. Dingus, who's the kid in that movie? Does he anyone? Did we see him in other stuff after that? You, you know, I, I really, I have not seen him since since we saw him in that movie. I really haven't, and I, you know, I, I really liked him in the movie. He's a guy named John Foster. Um, I think that's his name. Whoa! Uh, wait a minute. That's not not Ben Foster's brother from uh, Stay Alive, the video game movie. Is it? Yeah, I hope not. That would be weird. I think that's his name, but I'm just pulling it out of my head. Man, you might feel like that'd be weird. I'm going to Google this while you uh, explain to us. Uh, uh, anyway, um, anyway, I just, I, just, I lo- you know, there's this all this whole thing with art in this movie and how she, she, there's this great thing. Uh, there's so much I, I really liked watching this movie again this week and because she, after he delivers the drawings to Mimi Rogers, she rips them apart and they're all over her estate. They're all over all the bushes. All of his artwork is just strewn everywhere. So. Variously, I like the way art is depicted in this movie. I I really like Door in the Floor. Uh, Dingus, wow. It's definitely – so John Foster is his name. Uh, He is Ben Foster's younger brother. And I mocked the poor fella mercilessly for being the lead actor in a terrible video game movie called Stay Alive. Oh, no. Oh, no. So, yeah, that guy's still working, and he did a horrible horror movie a few years after uh, Door in the Floor called Stay Alive. Um and yeah, it's John Foster's younger brother. Wow. Because he was 
good in that, right? Like he held his own. Like he was no, sort of the center was... of the movie, and he held his own with Jeff Bridges and Kim Bassinger, right? Yeah, and it was a tough role because he has to. Yeah, he's in the he's in the center of so much turmoil. He has to uh, he has to deal with uh, this wonderful scene with Mimi Rogers, where he has to deliver the the sketches to her without giving her the portfolio, and he figures out a way to do that. Then she locks herself out of the house. He has to break into the house and then carry her in, and then she berates him. I mean, he he has a lot to do with that movie. I think he's great in it. I had no idea he was in that Stay Alive movie. Ah, oh, wow, poor kid. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. seriously. <laughs> All right, Kelly, one, have you seen Door on the Floor? Uh, I don't see movies with ampersands. <laughs> and the floor. Door and the floor. Door in the floor. I, sorry, I didn't enunciate. Clearly. Okay, I'll watch it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Ron, what is your number two favorite pick of art in a movie? My number two is the movie from the film um, in the movie Butter with Olivia Wilde. She's like a stripper. She, by the way, was one of the actresses in the Liam Neeson, uh, Adrian Brody thing. (laughs) It's Liam Neeson. If you want to see Liam Neeson hooking up with Olivia Wilde, Paul Haggis' third person is for you, Kelly Wand. In what context do they hook up? You you can you know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, omniscient. <laughs> I wouldn't. I don't care who wrote the hookup scene. That's not going to make it good or not. Um. Anyway, so it's about butter, butter, butter sculpture, right? Yes. And Jennifer Garner. There's like a small kid who's like really good at it. She's like the favorite to win, and she makes like the Last Supper out of butter. And Jennifer Garner makes like a tea bird, but Olivia Wilde makes a dick. So she's kind of the nader of the group. She makes the sign of a teaspoon. He makes the sign of a wave. Oh, it's so good. Nader as in the Ralph Nader or as in the high yeah. point? Is a nader a low point or is in the low point of the group? Well, no, she's like the – she's going to not probably win because she doesn't have the backing of one of the two political But I didn't know – do I have that right? Is nader a high – nader is a low point of something. Yeah. A, okay. Wait, you thought he was our president? I didn't know if you meant the Ralph Nader or the Nader, yeah. like N-A-D-I-R, Nader, the local. <laughs> oh, no, no. I wouldn't uh, that. Unsafe at any height. <laughs> well, see, Olivia see, Wilde. The thing is, that's writing worthy of a Phil Lord, Christopher Miller movie. <laughs> well done. Juan, stop talking. I'm trying to reference uh, <laughs> JK. Uh, all right, so uh, Butter, which none of us has seen except for Kelly Wan. Oh, Kelly Wan, do you recommend the movie Butter? Fuck yeah. Especially her parts. And her parts in the movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, am I the only one who's seen Grand Budapest Hotel on this podcast? Yeah, uh, you told me not to see it. All right. Yeah, you kind of waved us both off. Uh, it's, as I've said, it's Lesser Anderson, but uh, there are some good things in it. And one of the great things in it is the MacGuffin is a painting called Boy with Apple. It figures very prominently into the action, and Wes Cra- or Wes Craven, Wes Anderson is not shy. <laughs> That's it's only different kind of apple. Yes, <laughs> he is not shy about showing the painting, uh, and the painting is actually commissioned to have someone paint what's supposed to look like a Renaissance portrait of a boy with an apple. Um, and it's this kid, the, the painter, by the way, Grand Budapest Hotel is full of little fictional flourishes. And one of the flourishes is that this painting, Boy with Apple, is a, a, a priceless masterpiece by Johannes van Hoyten the Younger, who's not a real painter. Um, uh, but the painting is of a kid holding an apple, and he's got his hands contorted in this really weird way where it looks like he's plucking the stem off, or it reminds me of in Royal Tenenbaums 
how Wes Anderson was not above taking a shot at Cormac McCarthy by having Owen Wilson kind of make fun of that that style that Cormac McCarthy has. That was more the McMurtry making fun of. The Friscalating Dusk stuff? That wasn't yeah, a Cormac McCarthy reference? Larry McMurtry writes that was, like that? No, that was Cormac McCarthy. I'm pretty sure that's Cormac. I don't know my McMurtry, Kelly Wan, but... Wait, Cormac McCarthy doesn't write alternate histories of the Civil War. That's, I mean, that's like... Uh, no, I'm talking about the prose. Yeah, I'm talking about the prose style. Like, yeah. uh, And he threw the busted, busted flintlock on the leather craw and rode off in the Friscalating Dusk light. Like, Cormac yeah. McCarthy is really good at kind of making up words that they're almost like onomatopoeias that, that sound like things, even though they're not actual words. One of my favorite examples, Kelly Wand, is in, I think, The Orchard Keeper. He talks about someone scurling the lid off of a moonshine jar. Uh-huh. S-K-I-R-L. And that's not a real word. But it's it's an ingenious bit of Cormac McCarthy. And I think that Wes Anderson was kind of affectionate, not even making fun of, but kind of homaging or referencing in an affectionately humorous way uh, Cormac McCarthy's writing style in Royal Tenenbaum. Skrull's a word. S-K-I-R-L? Yeah. It's like a wailing noise. It's not what you – is it something you would do to the – is he then appropriating it for something you would do to the lid of a moonshine jar? Nah. Uh, no. It's not a verb. Okay. Because I'd never heard it before. I just assumed it was something he were. Uh, he once talked about um, – It's a, like bagpipes. A character looking out a window. He talks about the character puttying his nose against the window. For instance, that's and that's it. you know, putty's a word, but just playing with words like that yeah. is kind of a trademark of, of Cormac McCarthy. So I assume Skrull was made up. I could be wrong. He's like a Texan Joyce. Um, sure, okay. Joyce that's should cute. be so lucky, but yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I know. Um, I agree with that. But anyway, so I, I think that there's some of that. I don't know enough about art, but I think there's some of that going on with uh, Johannes van Hoyter, the younger's boy with Apple in Grand Budapest Hotel, where the painting is such a significant part of the movie. And it just looks – I think there's kind of an affectionate homage to the grand masters. I, I presume they were all Dutch or whatever, uh, who did paintings like that. Like It seems like the sort of thing that, that Wes Anderson knows about. Uh, and he wanted a very specific kind of painting in that role, and he got it. And it's a great MacGuffin, and I certainly love seeing – there's a point where uh, Ray Fiennes, who is so freaking hilarious in that movie, uh, thinks what? that the painting uh, looks like him. And he poses in front of it in the same shape, doing the weird plucking gesture with the apple, saying, doesn't it look like me? <laughs> he, <laughs> he thinks that he's the guy in the painting. Um, uh, but uh, I – so – in Googling this to make sure I got the names right, uh, I found an interview with the guy who did the painting and the little boy who actually sat for it. You know, they were commissioned by Wes Anderson uh, to do it for the movie. And the boy who sat for it talked about having to hold his hand, how uncomfortable it was holding his hand that way. And he specifically mentioned how difficult it was to pose for a painting because he had to sit still, so still that he couldn't even chew gum or check his phone. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that, oh no! That, that, yeah, that that's the really wow. difficult part for this ten-year-old boy posing for a painting. He couldn't check his phone, and he's chewing gum. Doesn't spit it out for the session. That's so, back. Yeah. Uh, is Gwyneth Paltrow in that movie? She is not. No, unfortunately. Well, I wonder if that's uh, a tribute, a oh, little bit of a tribute to her. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not that. It's not bad. It's that her. She has a kid named Apple. Jesus. Wow, I did not realize that. Very good. That's, that's, that's as obscure as some of my Jaws polls. Oh, sorry. I just, no, that's I, good. I, I'm almost certain her son is named Apple, and I'm wondering if he 
called it Boyd. Well, that's probably too much. Jaws literally pulls people under. Uh, there's a great moment in uh, Grand Budapest Hotel where the painting gets stolen, and just in a rush, it's replaced with this lesbian erotica, which at some point when somebody notices, he's just really upset the painting was stolen, he destroys the lesbian erotica. One of the things I found out is that the lesbian erotica is an actual painting. I think that's an actual bit of work that Wes Anderson put in the movie. When Wait, I, that's a title? Nah, I don't know the name of it, but it's these two like naked chicks all splayed out with each other. All lesbianism's erotica. That's very good, Kelly. Kelly lesbianism. Oh. Shut up, Wand. <laughs> well, uh, Kelly Wand, why don't you give us... Oh, no, you did your number two pick. Dingus, give us your number two favorite uh, bit of artwork in a movie. Literally. <laughs> did my number two pick. Uh, here's, uh, here's my number two pick. Uh, hey, Norm, how's the painting going? That's from Cheers, right? It's not. Uh, Norm. Tom, there's not many movie characters named Norm, huh? There really aren't, are there? So it's got to be Midnight Run, Joyce, or... What was that thing you said earlier? 21 Jump Street? Tom, you know, you're the dingus specialist. Well, I know, no, if I know I it, I, would, I could say, but no, I don't know that one. All right, so this is from the movie Fargo, um, and I'm uh, particularly oh, I'm so keen dumb. on this uh, because uh, her husband, Norm, is a painter, and he's entering his mallards into the competition to be uh, a U.S. postage stamp. And you never – I watched it again, and I, I just kept thinking, I, I know there's a scene where Norm paints, or the, we see what he's painting, but you don't. But there's this one scene uh, before you kind of track over to where they are in bed together where you see this Canadian goose, this beautiful Canadian goose. Um, and this Canadian goose painting – and I actually had to research this because I, I thought there was going to be this whole thing because he's a painter of ducks. Norm paints ducks. And uh, – and you know, Tom and I talked about this because uh, I'm I'm just a big fan of this Fargo television series, and I really <laughs> like where I, I haven't seen the the last episode, but the the episode before the one I've seen has uh, has Norman bed with uh, God. I can't remember what's her name. What's the sheriff's name? I can't remember the sheriff's name. Margie. Oh, thank you, Margie. Good. Um, and and. She says, uh, you know, we're do- we're doing pretty well, and it's and it's kind of it's basically just a replay of the of the scene from the movie. But the television show is just so smart and has so much more to add. Um, and I didn't think that was going to happen. So, uh, but that that this whole idea of he he actually gets he his painting, and he's a, he considers himself a painter. He's not just making stamps. He's he's a painter, and so people in in the town are constantly asking, "Norm, how's your painting going?" Um, and it, he gets a three cent stamp. But the people who win are the Hotmans. And what he didn't know is that that this Canadian goose painting that you actually see in the movie uh, is uh, is from these these brothers uh, Jim and Bob Hotman, who are renowned painters of ducks in, in the United States. And uh, and they're also friends, they're childhood friends of the Coens. Um, and and so uh, this this actually painting is it painting is something they borrowed from them and it, it's seen in the movie. Um, and and Marge and Norm talk about it at the end of the movie. And uh, it, it, it's it's a little weird. I think if I remember what I read about it, they they actually did 
federal duck stamps, which aren't postage stamps, but are, um, I don't know, used for protecting uh, birds or whatnot. Um, I'm sorry to say it that way. But the movie talks about postage stamps. And I just love, I loved watching the movie again and seeing this beautiful Canadian goose painting that they sort of pan over and that they actually used this from these, these two guys, Jim and Bob Hauptman, who made it for, you know, for their purposes and they used it in the movie. And Dingus, aren't duck paintings all like motel art? <laughs> Just a picture of a duck. Yeah. Well, are you making Billy Bob Thornton cry now? I just don't. I, I, I don't know. Picture of a duck, really? Okay. It's I mean, a, it's a goose. How dare you? Canadian geese are not duck, ducks. goose. Whatever. Duck, duck, goose. Did you ever play that game? <laughs> That's <laughs> set up. Wait, why do you hate ducks, Tom? That's okay. uh, ducks are fine, but I'm not sure that you know. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like I, I thought. Kind of the the, the joke. Not the what do you want in your stamps, Your Majesty? <laughs> I wouldn't want ducks. I won't tell you that much. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't that, that his painting was just kind of uh, like workmanlike, and it's just a straight up painting of a duck. Like, like is he in Fargo? Is he supposed to be a good painter? I don't. Know, I honestly don't know the answer to well, that. Well, at the end, you know, he gets he gets the bronze or something. You know, he gets the penny stamps, and then she consoles him. He gets like, the, the three stamp, stamp right. and she consoles him. So whether or not it's uh, pedestrian or motel art, it's his. Artwork and he's an artist. I mean, that's the point. He he's supporting her. He's at home. He gets up. He makes her breakfast. He's her support structure, but he's also an artist. And I like that fact that that this is so vital to him and so important to him. And and in that scene, in that final scene where he says it's just the three cent stamp, and she says, "Oh no, they're going to need that when the postage goes up." It's just such a sweet scene, and it's a very yeah. interesting view of. Of a workaday artist. I think we can all agree, though, that she is probably her career is probably supporting their household a little more than his career. Oh, oh not yeah. probably, it definitely. <laughs> That's what love's all about, man. She's a sheriff. He's a duck. There's no doubt that her career is supporting the household. She just solved a murder. He just made the post. Uh, Dingus, what's that actor's name? I love that guy. Do we know? He was Zodiac. He was one of them. There are different actors for each of the killings. Don't you love that about the about the movie Zodiac? Yeah, I guess so. I didn't notice that. But. Oh no! For each of the the scenes, uh, David Fincher used a different actor in in, the, the, in Zodiac. But he's the one. Nope, nope. He, there's a different actor in each scene. He's the one where Jake Gyllenhaal's all bro, and he what's, gives the spooky look. What's his name? Mister Gunderson. No, oh, come on. Do we not know that guy's name? He was uh, Gunderson. He's a character actor. He's been around forever. We should know yeah. his name. Um, all right. See, I, I've uh, seen him before too. I've yeah, seen he's him in a lot of theaters before. No, I mean, and I'm just no. I've seen him in real life. I just don't remember his no. name. Dingus, why didn't you go up and ask him? <laughs> what could you be happy for him? He wasn't up for it. I tried to, but he wasn't. up He's for a it. real transformer when it comes to acting. Kelly Wand, uh, you know this? I mean, God, God mm. it. Look, I'm not an actor, so I don't need to know actors' names. Right. You guys are the fucking motel art around here. Uh, Kelly Wan, what's your number one favorite uh, artwork in a movie? <sighs> that wasn't mine. Uh, the MacGruber's notebook with that license plate that he hates. And then uh, Ryan Felipe finds it. Does that count as art? Yeah, but what's the movie? 
Uh, all right, oh, so there's uh, a drawing in MacGruber, apparently, that is your favorite artwork in a movie. Yeah. Right. Well, because it keeps turning pages, and then the voices keep getting ghostlier. So it's like each page gets more artistic. But it's not text because it's numbers. So this is me turning over the new leaf, the 3 by 3 Huh. Yeah, I've seen MacGruber and have no idea what you're talking about. No, remember he gets uh, tailgated or something by a dude with a license plate that's like KFBR 312. And so he does artwork of it? No, he obsesses about getting revenge on the guy. So he fills. Oh, right, right. Like all those doodles, like psychotic doodles of the numbers, so he doesn't forget and it's all he can think about. And you chose that over uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt's tattoos in Heschler? I I couldn't see them very well. <laughs> uh, my number one favorite artwork in a movie. So bear with me for a minute here, because this is a, a slightly circuitous story. I uh, don't know anything about artwork, um, but I'm not above going to look at it. For instance, uh, we have a great museum here in LA called the Getty. Uh, I went there with a girlfriend. This is 15 years ago. Uh, I went there with a girlfriend, and they had hanging in this museum an Edward Hopper painting. His super famous one is the people in the diner. Whatever. They had another painting of of an usher sitting in a in a movie theater, and she's leaning against the wall in a little pool of light, which is very Edward Hopper esque. And she's lost in her thoughts. And over in the side, you can kind of see a movie screen. Um, and I loved that painting, and afterwards we went to the, the little gift shop, and I wanted to look for a print of it, and there wasn't one there, so I didn't think anything else of it. Uh, later that year, on my birthday, my girlfriend got me a framed print of this Edward Hopper painting, uh, which has been hanging in my house ever since. Uh, it's in the wall in the living room now. Uh, I love this painting. Um, I love what it kind of says about the juxtaposition of isolation and glamour of New York and, and Hollywood. It's just called New York Movie, um, and it's you know it's a piece of Hollywood brought into this New York movie theater um uh and i just love you know what just like any great work of art it leads you to ask a question and the question is you know what is she thinking about she's, she's obviously very lost in her thoughts so i've had this hanging in my living room wall uh, i watched again this morning uh, a movie i haven't seen in a couple of years um if you like michael shannon and i know we all do on this podcast we're very fond of take shelter and i think for a lot of people you know, take shelter. It's like, oh, this guy is really good. Where did he come from? You know, Michael Shannon's been working for years. The guy's hugely prolific career. Um, a few years before Take Shelter, he was in a movie called The Missing Person. The Missing Person was directed by Noah Bushel, and I don't think he's done anything else really noteworthy since. This is a very small movie. Uh, it is basically film noir, but in a modern day setting, starring Michael Shannon uh, as a guy who gets hired by Amy Ryan. She's sort of the femme fatale. And by the way, if the prospect of Michael Shannon and Amy Ryan flirting sounds as thrilling to you as it does to me, because it's the most adorable thing when they flirt in this movie, uh, you, you should totally see The Missing Person. But so The Missing Person is a film noir about a detective. It, like all great film noir, there are a few uh, kind of central tenets to film noir, and one of which is a detective is hired for a seemingly simple job, and then over the course of the movie – Things change and they morph and they get deeper and more complicated. And by the end of the movie, the plot is – it reveals something about the history of the city because film noir is so in love for the most part with L.A. I think of Chinatown as a perfect example. And it also ties into the history of the detective himself. 
you know, uh, Chinatown starts out being about uh, a murder, and then it's about uh, mismanagement of the city's water, and then finally it's about incest. Um, and it's this sort of journey into the corruption of, of L.A. Um, and one of the things that I love about The Missing Person is how it follows this pattern of really good film noir. You know, it has the detective is hired for something seemingly simple. It's not as it seems, and it changes. And over the course of changing, it is very, very much about the city. Now, Missing Person, you know, he's a Chicago detective. But one of the really cool feints in this movie is that it's not about Chicago. Uh, so there's a really cool progression across uh, different places. Uh, there's a progression of of, uh, of of the music, the sound in each place that I really like. Um, and where it ends up is, I'm almost certain, and I, I think if you read about too much about this movie, it's going to spoil it. But where it ends up and what it ends up being about is something you definitely wouldn't expect. And I love that about The Missing Person. Uh, something else I also really love about The Missing Person, it's a real joy to watch this. Uh, one of the things you need in, in film noir or in any detective movie are a bunch of little parts. You know, you need someone to play the cabbie. You need someone to play the motel clerk. You need someone to play the, you know, the policeman who shows up to ask him what he's doing on the job. In The Missing Person, all of these little parts are such a joy. I mean, there's, some of them are familiar actors, but Noah Bushel did not – I have to think that the guy worked in theater because all of the little tiny parts are so notable in Missing Person as Michael Shannon moves from person to person to person, from place to place to place, encountering different people. Um, so at any rate, to bring the point around, one of the things that – was really personally resonant with me in this movie is there are two points where New York movie, the painting, is directly referenced. So directly. The painting itself does not appear in the movie. Um, but two different absolute references directly to it that are key to the identity of the detective and his subject are based on the painting New York movie by Edward Hopper. Um, which, you know, watching the movie the first time when you first see it referenced, I was thinking, wait a minute, is that what I've got on my wall in the living room? And then the second time, it's unmistakable. And it's so important to both of the characters. So all of this is a very roundabout way of saying uh, that I heartily recommend an obscure film noir starring Michael Shannon and Amy Ryan called The Missing Person. And it features prominently a painting I really love called uh, New York Movie by Edward Hopper. But it's not a movie poster because it's a painting in the movie. Nope, the painting does not appear in the movie. It's an Edward Hopper painting. It's probably one of his more famous ones, but it uh, does not appear in the movie, I'm afraid. Oh. Wait, you made fun of me for Friends and Neighbors not appearing in the movie. It's directly referenced. Like, you would know seeing the movie. Well, you're right. I did make fun of you, but it, it's directly referenced. Like, it's clearly a movie about somebody who also – the movie was clearly made by someone to whom New York movie, the painting, means a lot. Hmm. It's unmistakable. And Is this I'm the just... Yellow Teeth girl? What? Was this the Yellow Teeth girlfriend? What are you talking about? Oh, God, no. That, was, uh, that wasn't even a girl. That was a Russian. Kelly Wan, nobody cares about What the hell? What? <laughs> so, no. Uh, so, I dated – Kelly Wan fixes on the weirdest details. I dated a girl who's from Russia who claimed that she had bad teeth because of Chernobyl. <laughs> and Kelly Wan thought that was really funny. Uh, and no, this was not that. I meant – I said tragic. I don't know where you got funny out of it. Yeah, that's neither here nor there, but no. Uh, Tragedy right. is comedy plus uh, radiation. Huh. Plus bear. 
Dingus, what's your number one favorite uh, artwork in a movie? Uh, here's a quote from it. It's a very funny feeling to know you're being hung nude in some stranger's living room. Could be long stocking. No. On, uh, let's see. Living room. Or the roses. <laughs> that has living rooms. Uh, here's the more popular uh, quote from the scene. I don't sell my work by the yard. It sounded like you're Sean Connery. <laughs> it yeah. does, but I can't do a Max von Sydow. Oh, then who was it? Is that Hannah and her sisters? This is indeed Hannah and her sisters, and it is the the scene where where uh, Michael Caine brings uh, Daniel Stern as this weird billionaire rock star in to buy um, some artwork uh, from Barbara Hershey's uh, significant other, Max von Sydow, and uh, the actual. I, I kept I watched this, and I kept thinking there was going to be some scene where he's where Max von Sydow's painting because I just remember him uh, saying I don't sell my paintings by the yard and then they end up fighting because really all Daniel Stern wants is a gigantic piece of art that he can put in his gigantic estate and he says he's got uh, he's got a couple of great pieces of work and the colors just flowed when you look at one of them I mean it's a kind of a funny scene but the the piece of art I'm talking about is is um, is the sketch really Uh, and and I didn't, I don't, as many times as I've seen Hannah and her sisters, I don't know that I've noticed this little moment until a couple of times watching it. Um, and I really love this movie. Uh, is, is, um, Michael Caine has, is, has designs on, uh, on Barbara Hershey. Um, and he's, he's a, mar- Michael Caine is a married man, so he, sh- so he shouldn't be doing this. Um, and Barbara Hershey is denying that they have a crush going on or any sort of interest at all. But Bob Kane, in trying to help, is bringing in a client to buy things. Um, and he knows, though, uh, he's been told that Barbara Hershey has posed for sketches for Max von Sydow. And so uh, what he says, what Max von Sydow says to uh, Daniel Stern is, uh, do you appreciate drawings? And then he points over to these two nudes that he's drawn that are set up prominently and Daniel Stern's like, yeah, whatever. But Michael Caine drifts right into them and you see Max von Sydow watch him walk in. And I realized that, well, that's a trap. I mean, that's clearly a trap. And I love the way that that, because this is, this is a weird artist. He does these amazing paintings, but what you see are these nude sort of, uh, crude sketchings of Barbara Hershey as a nude, and and Michael Caine is just drawn to them like a magnet, um, and so I love that little moment in Hannah and her sisters. When did we last see Barbara Hershey? By the way, what's become of she her? She never did it for me. She was in Stuntman and that. And no, I mean recently though. You loved her in Beaches, didn't you? <laughs> Which one was she? Uh, was the Beaches. Wait, was she in those in, Insidious, one of those uh, Insidious movie things? What? No, the last thing we saw her in that was of any importance was uh, Black Swan. Oh, God. Well, yeah. Thank was she you. the mom? Right, right. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure she was in one of those, like, movies from like those, like, Insidious movies. Oh, in I didn't some see capacity. It. No, you shouldn't have, and there's no reason you would have. But I think she did one of those. But no, I'm so glad you brought up Black Swan, because, yeah, that's totally Barbara Hershey. Yeah. Didn't Sinister and Insidious? Yes, come out like within a week of each other. 
Kelly one, you'll have to check the calendar on that. I'm not sure. No, lost interest. <laughs> Biggest, lost what, what interest. do our readers have for us? All right. So first of all, we have Anne. Uh, hi, Court to Three. Here are my picks for this week's 3x3. Three three. Number one, the Thomas Crown Affair. Mm. Rene Magritte's painting of the Son of Man features a man in a gray overcoat with a green apple that obscures his face. This painting appears in the last part of this uh, parenthetical, terrible, unparenthetical film, as actors in similar overcoats crowd the museum and make it easy for the protagonist to flee. The painting itself might be thought of as a commentary on desire and market, two themes that run throughout what we might generously call, quote, the plot, unquote. This is the Pierce Brosnan thing? Um, she hasn't made clear whether it's Pierce Brosnan or Steve McQueen. The thing that's annoying about British movies is if they have the word affair in it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's fucking going on. It could just be a thing that happened. Uh, what is it? Does human sexuality mean that you get to see other people? In America, it does. In America. Wait. What? Sorry. I was just asking about your human sexuality course. Oh, okay. <laughs> and number two is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, Georges Serrault... Uh, or is it Surratt? Uh, Georges Surratt. Uh, Sunday on La Grande Jacques uh, makes a cameo in the scene. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Back up. Davis, let's hear the name of that painting again. It's Georges with the S on the end, huh? Uh, I don't know how to say it. Georges. You tried. They, you were like you were like uh, Channing Tatum in that it's scene. It has name. You committed, but I just want to hear that again. Uh, I, I am Jeff. Uh, Sunday on La Grande Jacques. I like listener picks where I've seen the movie, so I approve of this Ferris Bueller choice. Uh, makes a cameo in the scene where Bueller and his friends contemplate their futures while in the Art Institute of Chicago. If you haven't seen this work in person, go and see it sometime. The entire piece is made of tiny dots, because uh, um, parenthetically I'm saying it's called pointillism. Uh, and I, I didn't know if it's – is this call, is this Sunday in the Park with George is based on? Um Anyway, now back to Anne. Uh, tiny dots of color that are placed together, presaging the technology used for TV screens. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of it that way. It's like mosaic phosphor yeah. dots. Um, but yeah. that is what Sunday in the Park with George is based on, right? Jeez, I don't know musicals. It you'll have to have it. molecules. What? It's basically, uh, I don't know... A tableau of, I mean, a part of the the fun of, of Sunday in the Park with George is that it's kind of a tableau of of George Sherratt's painting. I just didn't know it was called Sunday on the Grand. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say shot, yacht, shot. I don't know. I couldn't even tell what you were saying, but it sounded very French, so I got I got the point. Uh, so okay, I want to do a real quick tangent. Uh, Anne says if you're ever in Chicago, you should go see it in person. I've gone to museums and seen paintings in person. I don't. I don't know that I necessarily derive much benefit from that. Am I a philistine? Like, I feel you can't like I see it. It's like if you see it online, you can't touch it, and if you go there in person, you can't touch it. Well, I don't want to touch it, but I just sort of feel like touch just, it. just looking at a big old fat print of it isn't that good enough? Like, it's what am I going to get actually seeing the painting? Am I? Are you guys? Well, do you, you know, go with no. a magnifying glass and a monocle like you're supposed to? Like a there's something about being. I mean, there's something about being in the room with something that so many people have derived so much pleasure of. I mean, I mean, it's it's. I would analogize it to analogize. I would I would say it's an, al- an analog to reading a book many other people have read that has dog-eared pages. That you feel like there's a there's a history that 
that you are a part of because you're in the room looking at this very thing that other people have seen. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel that, Dingus. I went, I, I saw, and maybe it's just because I was too young and dumb to understand. I was certainly too young and dumb to be in Paris. But I, I went and saw the Mona Lisa, and I remember uh, thinking, oh, really? Okay, whatever. I mean, well, with the build, was the build up too much? Like. Oh, she smiles mysteriously. I'll be the judge of that. I don't know. I mean, I was just I was like, I could have just looked at a print. I'm, I'm clearly a philistine. So obviously, people who know about art feel differently. But I just have never gotten that sense. Even that Edward Hopper thing, which I love seeing, and I, I, you know, I'm okay with just having a print of it. I'm dumb too, and I think I only respond to text. Uh, I wish I felt the way Dingus felt because uh, it would be cool to actually care, and like Anne says, to actually care about wanting to see a painting in person. I think we're just idiots, but it's also like, in addition to us being idiots, art's whatever speaks to you. So well, it's like if we look at Bosch triptychs and we're like, yeah, I can see how kind of pointy. Here's an example. I think actually seeing a building, for instance, seeing a picture of it never does justice. And a lot of it is a matter of scale. Uh, never does justice to seeing picture to seeing actually the building in person. But if the Mona Lisa was live sitting in front of you, smiling cryptically, would you go, nice work? Sister, or would you go? <laughs> I'd like to see the video of this. She'd Fuck probably us. be frustrated because she couldn't chew gum or check her phone messages. Uh, What's the science fiction movie where the Mona Lisa gets torched? Uh, and Bean, <laughs> Wait, and what? also 2012. Wait, did you say Bean? Yeah, I think that's Whistler's mother, though. No, I'm thinking of something sillier. Um, Mona Lisa gets torched. Fahrenheit 451. What's that? I said, Kelly Wan, go get your own. Oh. What's the gun? Ca- what's the gun? Kata one. Equilibrium. Equilibrium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feed Kelly to it. That's all I know. I was gonna say. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, what famous paintings though have you guys seen? Like Dingus, obviously you, you feel about this a certain way. Like, have you seen a famous painting? You were like, "Wow, I'm glad I'm seeing this in person." Like, have you? Well, no. Uh, I'm actually thinking. This. I'm actually thinking of being in in Washington D.C. and seeing the like the original American flag. Uh, put on display in a very special display in the Smithsonian, thinking about how that how that flag had to be taken care of. I mean, it's a a ginormous flag and it's falling apart, and you it's a darkened room. You can't take flash pictures of it, and and as I sit in front of it, I'm just thinking of 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 the all of the decades or that makes sense of time to America. I'm just thinking of all the eyes that have looked at it and all the hands that have held it and the hands that made it. And and when I think of an artist having actually painted it, I'm looking at the thing that they actually touched. I love that feeling of somebody else, that, the person who created this touched it, and it's right, right here in front of me. But when the art is primarily visual and not, it doesn't have this sense of a relic like that flag – I, I guess I just don't appreciate the the importance of the actual object of the canvas quite so much. Right. But yeah, I get what you're saying about that flag. And certainly there's some paintings where I've seen where they're really big, and I'm like, yeah, hey, it's really cool seeing this big. But I kind of feel like if I'd seen a print blow up to that size, that would have done me just as What about using a, 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 a <laughs> Sorry, Kelly Wan. Well very well put. Yeah, man. Kelly Wan, you nailed it. <laughs> that speech is going to be in a museum someday, and people will marvel at it and go – all right, I just, I just, Anne mentioning that about being in Chicago just really made me think of that. So sorry to, to interrupt Anne's picks, Dingus. Go on. No worries. Uh, number three, The Picture of Dorian Gray, 1945. Oh, uh, even DeLorean Albright's <laughs> The Picture of Dorian Gray. Is that Tom <laughs> trolling the year, 1945? <laughs> he doesn't like that. He's much more of a 1944 Apollo. Oh, a movie about a painting? Uh, no, no, I've seen, I've seen latter day horror takes on Picture of Dorian Gray. He like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. 
I think one of them might have had Colin Firth in it. Uh, I oh, he's terrifying. I agree with you. But yeah, God, they made one of those back in 1945. Oh, God. Anyway, getting back to real things, <laughs> says Tom. So Anne says, uh, this is a truly staggering work painted in bright, garish hues of red, green, yellow, and blue. The painting was made especially for the movie, but sadly the film was shot only in black and white. It's quite disturbing when seen in person, as it is the final form of Dorian Gray, a rotting, misshapen, oozing lump of evil. Caution. <laughs> Don't stare too long. He's well, like the girl from The Ring. Oh. <laughs> See, that looked like a painting. Uh, she also has a special mention, but she parenthetically says, you don't have to read this one. It might be too nerdy. So shall I read it or shall we move on? It seems like a weird reason to not read it. Here. <laughs> uh, number four, Star Trek Into Darkness. And <sighs> she says, Lindelof! Apart from the silly title and ridiculous plot, the movie features one of my favorite drawings by a Renaissance artist in the scene where the Admiral convinces Kirk to go to a planet near the Klingon homeworld. The drawing by the Renaissance artist Paolo Uccello is of a Mezzocchio, oh sorry, she gives me a a pronunciation, Mezzocchio, a circular band that would have been worn inside a man's hat. The shape is repeated throughout the movie in the interior of the Enterprise Bridge and Starfleet War Room. I attached an image of it in this email in case you all want to see what I'm nerding out over. Renaissance art rarely shows up like this outside of Dan Brown Shudder movies. Uh, Uh, What about the papyrus that they used to distract cannibals? Good point, Kelly. That's good art. I like that last one. Uh, I will share. We will uh, post that picture. Uh, so next we have Fred Bow. It's Fred and Lynn. We're back. Uh, number three, the Golden Idol. Indy attempts to borrow by switching it with a bag of sand on a booby-trapped plinth. Guess in it is a sculpture. Raiders of the Lost. Is Star. it a monkey? A gold monkey? No, What's the sculpture dude. of? It's a dude. Yeah, it looks like a little Buddha-y kind of looking thing, wasn't it? Yeah. What if? What if let's, it just, ask, let's ask Alfred Molina. He's got that still, doesn't he? <laughs> Very good. Uh, I just saw... He's uh, got spider detection on that mission. And something I was watching this week I saw... Oh, God, what's her name? Never mind. She plays Alfred Molina's wife in Spider-Man. Yeah. Damn it. I love oh, uh, poetry lady. Poetry lady. Thank you. Do you think Anna Jones just hung out with treacherous people to just weed them out? I'll just lose him to the rock and the spikes and shit. Then Fred, I can get short round back. Okay, yeah, what? Fred and Bo's number two. Oh, this is good. Uh, oh, but they don't pick, pick a specific one. Darn it. All right, Delia's Dangerous Art in Beetlejuice. Uh, I wish you guys would have picked a specific one. That's a great choice. That weird sculpture that traps. Oh, yeah, hey, that's, that's good. good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, you can't be. You got to be more specific. Come on, Fred and Bo. We're glad. I mean, Fred and Lynn, We're glad to have you that back. That little city. Yeah. I think they mean. She means. Uh, and uh, number one for Fred and Lynn is a rocking penis sculpture from. Ew, uh, gross. Orange. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's a penis. That's- I thought it was a mermaid's coral. Can you guys think of another notable painting from another Stanley Kubrick movie, or a notable painting from another Stanley Kubrick movie? Uh, is it a painting or a picture? A photo? Does the monolith count as a oh, painting? Oh, I was assuming it was a painting. Dingus, I could be wrong. Are we thinking of something from The Shining? Yeah. Yeah, I thought you might be right about it being a picture. Never mind, a photograph. 
Uh, yeah, Scatman Crothers' artwork of a of a of a Biafrode sister. Um, <laughs> Biafrode. Certainly sure. memorable. Certainly, Stanley Kubrick was amused by it. He decided to figure prominently into the scene. <laughs> All right. Next, we have Grant Stewart. Hi, guys. Big fan of the show. Not usually one for contributing, but the subject raised has struck a nerve and might now unravel a bit of a rant from me. Grant Stewart give you... sounds like an art major. Uh, Grant saying. Stewart, yeah. I, I agree with you. Grant Show. I'm not nice. going to give you a top three, just the one that sticks in my mind, although I'm sure someone will have nailed this down already. Jack Nicholson's Joker in Tim Burton's <laughs> 1989 Batman spares the Francis Bacon painting figure with meat while defacing all other artworks in the Gotham Gallery. <laughs> Prince of music's art in that scene, too. <laughs> uh, he also calls himself an artist of crime. He calls himself... He's the clown prince. Um, the painting shows a dark figure who appears to be screaming, flanked by two sides of a beef carcass. The painting was based on a previous portrait of Pope Innocent Ten, but gives a completely different and horrifying slant to a similar image. One of the things I dislike about the movie is that they make it clear that it was Joker that killed Bruce Wayne's parents and therefore makes the storyline feel a little bit too circular and incestuous. But I really like that this work of art illustrates something that has been an ongoing theme throughout the various Batman franchises and media platforms, that Batman and the Joker created each other. This painting represents the duality of their existence, and the fact that the Joker chooses to spare it highlights something about the Joker's character. He is not simply an anarchist for anarchy's sake. He has an agenda. He can be discerning, and he can be precise in his application of violence. This puts more flesh in the bones than Cesar Romero's Joker, and it makes Nicholsonville a neat stop over on the way to Ledger Town. Um, yeah, Grant Stewart's definitely an art major talking yeah. like that yeah. uh, <laughs> there were 10 dudes named Innocent uh, keep up the good work guys Grant from Edinburgh living in London uh, I bet Grant has an awesome accent Grant- oh and he, he oh, I'm so glad I knew this and parenthetically he says please don't do a Scottish British accent <laughs> okay Grant I didn't uh, P.S. why do you call Christian Verbinski dingus gengus whatever uh, that will forever be a mystery, Grant. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just so happy that I didn't bother to do an accent. I thought Most, that was your... That was not, no. So uh, this is... Uh, next, we have Arthur uh, Joe Vanangeli. Has the word art in his name. Yeah, I know. That's what's so awesome about Arthur Joe Vanangeli. And Van. Uh, mine... Oh, very nice. Um, this is a good one. I like this one. This is the kind of thing I was talking about when... Creating within the movie. This is good. Uh, my, the quote he gives is, mind the drawings, please. Um, this is from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, the drawings that Hannibal Lecter drew during his time spent in the light cage cell in Tennessee courthouse. The one we get the best look at appears to be a graphite drawing of Clary Starling holding a lamb. Just a little bit creepy. <laughs> Just a little bit. And he uses them as a tool to buy him time to pick the lock on his handcuffs. Uh, I like the uh, the Duomo. The Duomo picture is the one I, I thought he was going for uh, because he, he says that that I think he references his drawing as what he has instead of a view. Uh, so that's a great pick, Arthur. Good, good job. Uh, number two. 
Oh, this is great. All right, you guys. Here, uh, Tom and yes. Kelly, you should be able to get this quote. Okay. The hands are a little big, don't you think, sweetheart? Hands are a little big? The hands are oh, a little hands big. Are, oh, my God, I do know what this is. Kelly, what is this? Hands. I totally know this. Uh, Dingus, give us a hint. Twin Peaks. Uh, here's an obvious hint. It's so gushy. Oh. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very uh. good. No, this is awesome. So uh. this is uh, this is super. Rain Wilson's drawings of perfect moments from his life. He has an entire wall of them, and they are all hilarious and strangely moving. Guys, we get another James Gunn movie this summer. What? Oh, really what is good. it? Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, ready? <laughs> I am. I mean, I don't know. If I, just, I don't know who those characters are. Everyone at work. James Gunn oh. is the director. That's all you need to know. Slithers and then there's are, some right? other people. I'm a Slither apologist, Tom. And there you are. Elizabeth Banks. <laughs> I just love that quote. The hands are a little big, don't you think so? Because <laughs> that's, that's Liv Tyler to him. Is that right? Is that like, yeah, he's opening his heart and showing her the paintings, and that's her reaction. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, hands are so hard to draw. I did. It, I, I just found all these uh, terrible um, renderings I had to make for costume class in college. I just found them the other day, and hands, they just look like somebody just made... Uh, somebody took a hand and put it in a waffle iron and then smashed it with a pancake maker. It's just it's terrible. Hands are easy to draw. Oh, you, you can trace them. If only there was some way to trace something, the hand shape the, at, at hand that you could trace a hand shape with. That's a good point. I, you know, when you draw a figure about the size of a magazine cover, you should put your hand down and make a hand. The hands are a little big, don't you think, sweetheart? Uh, so Arthur's number one is it couldn't possibly come from. I know it's true. Uh, so this is District 9, the handmade flower that we see an alien making in mm. the last shot of the movie. I hope this counts as a work of art. If it doesn't, I apologize. It might be more of an arts and crafts type of item, but either way, it makes a great final shot. What about Blade Runner's origami? Tougher. Does that count as art? Sure, why not? I have to own shit away. Too bad you won't live, Kelly. There's a sequel to that that also is going to injure Harrison Ford. Uh, next we have Paul Weimer hi guys my three favorite original artworks and movies all of them are rather dark and disturbing in nature bring it on Paul number three the sculpture of sinners in hell that is the prominent part of the decor of John Milton's penthouse suite in Devil's Advocate (laughs) little on the nose (laughs) even creepier in that it definitely starts to move as Keanu Reeves haplessly stares at it <laughs> I can't believe somebody mentioned Devil's Advocate. That's awesome. Number two, the grisly painting in the hotel lobby in the Mouth of Madness that shows mm-hmm. the Byzantine. Oh, grisly painting. That makes me think of. Oh, never mind. Dan Haggerty? <laughs> the Byzantine Church in the background. The two nasty creatures in the foreground. Worst in that it changes and gets even more disturbing between glasses at it. And number one, the eponymous painting depicting its unchanging, unaging owner in The Portrait of Dorian Gray. Which 1945. Oh, Tom. Oh. <laughs> You've been I, out. We're not guns. I suspect even though this is a grandpa movie, it might have been scooped. Grandpa it's actually a Portrait of Dorian Gray with, with Josh Dumail. You guys should maybe see that one. Josh Dumail from the Transformers movies. Oh, I like that. Plays Dorian Gray. Oh, do you? 
What? He's oh, like what? a generic. He's the generic, yeah. like the the ninety nine cent store version of Timothy Oliphant. He's the poor man's Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> what do you like him from, Josh Duhamel? Yeah, Vegas. <laughs> what, what, why would Walmart's, you like that? Or Vegas? What else was he on? Is it the one where there's jokes with him and a, and a baby? Like he's got a little baby he has to take care of. So it's no, I, don't, I don't like him from anything. I was just making fun of what you said before. Oh, but moving on. Uh, Randy Connolly is next. Uh, only two this week. Number two, Bill Murray's snow sculpture of Andy McDowell's head in, Grand, in Groundhog Day. This scene represents the completed transformation of Murray's character and is the start of his last night in Puxatawney Purgatory. Is um, that why he got out of it? He gets out of Purgatory by making that. By making snow. Yeah. Um, and Randy's number one, a movie where every piece of art means something whether a charcoal drawing, a model train set, or mashed potato sculpture. Mm. Ah, well. Is yeah, it I got hard? one of those in my living room. <laughs> Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Artworks are important to the film in a number of ways. Richard Dreyfuss' character is suddenly driven to sculpt, while his wife grows more confused and scared by his inexplicable actions. The art also links some of the other characters and contributes tonally to the film's... It is a great one. I forget forget my... Well... But I think if Terry Garr's character had stuck around, she would have come around going, oh, actually, that is not... That is looks just like the news, I think. <laughs> Special edition. Next, we have Nick D. Uh, number three, we have The Devil's Advocate... Again, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is a horrible movie, but it's a guilty pleasure of mine, probably because it's so bad. I love the scene at the end where Al Pacino is screaming slash hoo-yahing in his office, and the sculpture behind him, which looks like a big chunk of gothic architecture, comes to life. It's an over-the-top ending to an over-the-top movie, and it's fantastic. Number two, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This is an iconic scene where Cameron, played by Alan Ruck, thank you, stares at Surratt's famous Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte. Again, I apologize for mispronouncing that. Um, while visiting Art Institute of Chicago. I love this scene, not only for introducing me at a young age, the concept of pointillism. Oh, thank you, Nick. Uh, but for having the balls to include a nice quiet moment in a teen comedy. R.I.P. John Hughes. And number one, L.A. Story. <laughs> uh, Steve Martin and his friend are goofing around in the L.A. County Museum of Art. When they bump into the girl, he has a crush on an awkward her date. Uh, the foursome walk around the museum together, and Martin proceeds to analyze a painting in depth to the other three. After going on and on about the characters and the relationships, and how torrid and sexual and aroused he is by the painting, the camera reverses to reveal that they are all looking at a large red rectangle. Hot. Which movie? This is L.A. Story, and it is a funny uh. you know. You know, he talks about, hey, we should go to the Guggenheim. Oh, because we can roller skate. Uh, but but he does this whole thing about he's just analyzing the painting, and then the camera reverses to show. They're just looking at a big rectangle. Uh, next, we have David Henderson. Hey, guys. First off, I want to wish Dinkus a happy Father's Day. Thanks. Aw. Uh, the theme of my three choices is three superb movies that I saw because I started listening to your equally superb podcast six months ago. Thank you, David. Number three, here's a line. I don't like it any more than you do but I want him to owe me something. Michelle Williams says this line to Zoe Kazan while she's fixing the Indian's shoe in Meek's wow. cutoff. Huh. In this scene, the Indian, played by Rod Rondeau, is drawing on a rock. 
The triangular drawings kind of look like shelter, but I don't know. And that is part of the point. We don't know the Indian's motivation. So we don't know if he is doodling to pass the time, communicating with his fellow people, or marking a spot to indicate he's been there. It's an interesting choice. It's an awesome choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's really interesting. By the way, why, why haven't you guys seen Kelly Reichert's next movie yet, Night Moves? Because her movies never play near me. It's no excuse, Kelly. One, you can go to the movies if they won't come to you. Uh, I don't want to hear any more of your guff, Kelly. One. Uh, but <sighs> yeah, what? All, right. all right. So David Henderson, what else has he, has he got for us? I like that one. So these are all things we recommended. I like that. Boy, a glance at the this next two. He's thing of spoilers. Sorry, number two. I like the picture of the nude woman that Jared Gilman had drawn in Moonrise Kingdom. Mm. I like the scene in which Bill Murray asks if it's a picture of his daughter, played by Carrie Hayward, who Gilman had run off with. That part. And uh, David's number one. I really liked the model town that Sam Rockwell was working on in Moon. The, <laughs> I thought he was going to say Lego movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God he didn't. Uh, the model helps us understand how much downtime Sam has had on the lunar station. Also, I won't spoil anything, but there's a line about how the model town was there when Sam arrived. And this line becomes more significant as the plot unfolds. Thanks for reading. Your end-of-the-year best-of podcast is the only award show I'll ever need. David, thank you so much. What a great email. Thank you. Um, Next, we have another day. This is Dave Perkins. Artworks! Exclamation point. Number three. Dave... (laughs) <laughs> number three in 500 days of summer oh, oh fuck joseph gordon levitt draws a skyline on zoe deschanel's forearm he aspires to be an architect and she's oh. encouraging him to pursue his dream <laughs> and see, acts not- as his sketch pad see it's like an analogy it's the coolest you can wear my varsity jacket ever <sighs> hear that tom he gets it he really gets it. Man, that Mark Webb. <laughs> Number two. In her, Joaquin Phoenix ambles along walkways, absorbed in monologue with his pre-Samantha earpiece. But as his relationship with, as, as his relationship with Samantha, Samantha deepens, he starts to observe his world as if it re, as if reawakening to it. We can't hear what they are talking about as he approaches and touches the giant inverted airplane sculpture. But I imagine they are discussing art. I looked it up. That sculpture was created for the movie. So there's a giant inverted airplane. Huh. I don't remember that. Do you remember that, Dingus? Uh, vaguely. I vaguely remember right. what he's talking about. Inverted like on its tail or just like upside down like it's landed? I do not know. But huh. I, okay. I mean, I just remember how how great the production design of that movie was in creating sort of a future that could go basically from now but was a little bit beyond now. So that's a good choice. Uh, number one, Dave Perkins says, In Children of Men, the main characters wander into a ruined elementary school where the alphabet letters peel from the walls and the swing sets stand empty. But the most touching detail to me was the children's artwork, which will never be replaced. It's almost impossible for an adult to mimic a child's art. I, I was thinking, when, the moment he said Children of Men, of Danny Houston having all these like busted, yeah. neglected relics in this warehouse-slash-house where he lived. 
Right. So it's even like, isn't Michelangelo in there without his leg or something? Yeah, like, stuff like that. It's just like these maimed artworks that he yeah. seems to have gathered. That, yeah. And he has this huge mural on his wall where they're eating dinner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, freaking Danny Houston, man. I love to hate him. <laughs> uh, great topic from Dave and Michelle. What about birth? He's good in that. That's because I love to hate him. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I love him in uh, birth. It's yeah. you. Uh, next, we have Gretchen Grassoff. Uh, hey, guys. Great topic, Dingus. Here are my three artworks in movies. Uh, number three, quote, Oh, you're probably feeling what Vigo is feeling, Carpathian kitten loss. Uh, it's got to be Eastern Promises. Close, it's Ghostbusters 2. Jesus fucking Christ. This painting and character are so ridiculous, but I love the idea that art history could be a villain. <sighs> Number two quote. Hmm, isn't this a wonderful piece, class? This definitely falls into the higher category of art I was speaking of earlier. So this is Ghost World. Mm, Ghost-themed list. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very nice. Uh, uh, Terry Zweigoff and Daniel Close really know how bullshit art studies, and it shows in this art school confidential. It's hard to pick one piece out of this movie, but the feminist overachiever had something really special with that tampon and the teacup piece. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really hungry. What? If only I had some. I just like Don Knotts. Tampons. Uh, yeah. Plus, Ileana Douglas plays the best kooky art teacher. Having a high, having a fine art degree myself, I've experienced this level of ridiculousness in several of my classes. Once, a girl in my experiment. <laughs> Once a girl in my experimental media course turned in a dead rabbit as her project. Oh. So inspiring. What was the... Okay. <laughs> I follow up questions. Number one quote from Gretchen Grassoff. The girl with the glass, maybe her thoughts are with somebody else. Oh, girl with the good glass. one. Oh, that's a nice one. All right, this is Amelie. Uh, it popped straight into my head when the topic of art was mentioned. Luncheon on the Boating Party by Renoir is a huge part of the film's narrative, directly connecting Amélie to the woman with a glass. It's such a sweet, delicate scene when she appears too shy to talk to the glass man about her mysterious... Oh, God. Wretched. All right, about her mysterious love, but finds the painting as a vehicle to express herself. Again, love this movie. Love the podcast forever and ever. Wait, why did you say it like that? Because I was thinking about different forgeries, because I saw another movie this week that made me think of this, and I could not remember a movie that somebody was lovingly doing forgeries. And I can't believe that, once again, Amelie totally, totally escaped my memory. Uh, and, and The Glass Man painting the Renoir is that's a beautiful I mean this is exact I'm just really annoyed that I didn't think of this at all it's really annoying but it's a great pick there's a terrible movie called The Maiden Heist do you guys know this it's uh yeah. it's Christopher Walken and Morgan Freeman uh oh William H. Macy they are guards at a museum and so they've got nothing to do when they're working there, but just sit there in a room, make sure people don't touch the paintings. And they have each separately fallen in love with a different work of art in this museum. Uh, Christopher Walken's the main character, and he's fallen in love with a painting called The, the Lonely Maiden. 
So when it turns out that the museum is about to relocate its artwork to some other museum in Europe or whatever, they decide they're going to band together and create a heist to steal the artworks for themselves. Uh, and part of the, the substance of the movie is they each have to make sure a forgery is created of the artwork they're going to steal that can stand in for, for when it's delivered to another museum. So they have to get these forgeries made for these these paintings and William H. Macy's case of sculpture uh, that they that they all love. Um, but it's a it's a terrible movie. So I like heist movies about art, except that one with Clooney we didn't see. Did you see that uh, trance thing with uh, James McAvoy? Nah. There's a lot of art heisting in there. There's one with a train in the title where they steal art with, from Nazis. Monument Smith? No. <laughs> That's not a train. Uh, that we know of. There could be a train called the Ah. Yeah. A train's like a living monument that's horizontal on the tracks that are also a monument. Uh, Dingus, were there others? Was that the last one? Uh, there's a couple more. Uh, we have Aaron the Great next. Uh, here's my artfully composed list of choices for this week's 3 by 3 Number three, The World's End. The newly installed statues littering town have their own secrets in this movie. Without spoiling anything, because I'm sure everyone intends to watch this movie, these pieces of artwork temporarily have a life of their own, then in the course of events, return to being art. The trash cans? I've, I, I haven't seen The World's End, so I don't know. Oh. Um, number two, The Iron Giant. Hero statues are a running gag in most shows now, but the Iron Giant settles on a touching tribute to the space robot. What's cute is that it's the first appreciated sculpture from the frustrated junkyard guy. Oh, that's good. Uh, especially after most of his art became snacks for the giant. I forget that Harry Connick was, was doing art in that junkyard. Do you remember who the mom was? Aniston. Ah, so yeah. this is her greatest role in a movie yet, because she didn't have to appear to have chemistry with another actor. Oh, uh, Hor- horrible bosses. Motel art. Motel acting. Uh, we're the Millers. <laughs> uh, raised eyebrow, like Ice Cube. Who, who else is in Raised Eyebrow? Um, Sean Connery and... Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> oh, master of it. And Nicholson. Aaron's number one is called... Terror Vision. <laughs> wow. I've seen that. And oh, yeah, you've definitely seen it. Yeah. yeah. The house in this movie is nuts, but even more outrageous are all the sexy paintings that deck the walls. Apparently, paintings of sexual acts aren't an issue to the family of four or the grandfather, but maybe all swinger houses are like that. Uh, <laughs> I have never seen Terror Vision. I remember really liking it. Dingus, it's not for you. All right, good. Thank you for waving me up. Uh, runner-ups, when they drive through the art garden in 22 Jump Street, too soon. Um, it's, <laughs> it's really exciting, but it's so expensive. Um, and the that Star was Wars, Robotics Factory. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Star Wars trilogy is kind of a work of art if you think about it. Thanks for the podcast, Aaron. Oh, I thought that was you, Dingus. No, it's Aaron. Uh, no. Next, we have two more. Josh. Uh, Dingus, the paintings of those Mexican guys in Royal Tenenbaums, right? Just figured. Yeah, when somebody mentioned grotesque art, all I could think about was those horrible paintings in his in his in uh is it Rich? That's no, not Richie. Uh, what's Owen Wilson's? Cool. Yeah, I like it in horror movies when the monster makes some kind of art. 
either directly or else as a kind of projection of its horror onto the world around it. Wait a minute. Like the alien does with Dallas. And the yeah, where is it going with this? Uh, well, we'll see where Joss takes us. I feel like you get this more in horror movies from the last 20 years or so. Here are a few I came up with. Number three, The Blair Witch Project. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's kind of crafts. Yeah. It's right. Yeah. So, uh, he says those evil little wooden crafts that they find hanging from the trees, which um, which I, I've never seen yeah, Blair Witch. Crafts. It just makes me think of uh, True Detective. Uh, maybe they have some kind of spell function, <laughs> but I'd at least call them folk art. Another one from this movie could be the children's handprints in the house at the end. Uh, uh, even though the children are victims, the handprints have this evil vibe to them that suggests of this whole other thing, like as though once consumed by the evil – children are now somehow contributing to it that always happens fucking the grudge kid wasn't evil till he died death turns kids mean oh wow the more you know uh number two josh uh dawn of the dead 2004 remake uh remember the guy in the roof of the ammo place who writes messages on the people mm-hmm. in the mall on the whiteboard I love that part where he gets zombied and then comes back up onto the roof, and you see him working away at the whiteboard, then holding it up to reveal that he's just smeared blood all over it. This may be the most <laughs> horrifying image in the movie, I think because it's a message directly from a zombie consciousness, and we see just how alien and horrifying the essence of that consciousness is. But similar. And I think that's that more of a memo. Isn't that more of a memo? Zombie art. Who, who are we to judge? Ah, good point, Tom. And number one, something called Ring Goo. What's that? Oh, that's Ring, the Ring. Oh, okay. From 1998. I like the video that Sadaku makes in this one. Wait a minute. Who? Sadako. I don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't, I've never seen Ring Goo. What's her name in the Japanese one? Sadako. Sadako. I don't know, but it totally sounds like those numbers puzzles. I didn't, that's the character's right. name. Right. Right. I come out of your TV, why, man? Oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Finally, I thought we were going to make it. We didn't. Uh, I like the, the video that Sadako makes in this one better than the one in the Verbinski remake. Uh, Wait a minute, isn't her name like Samsura or something? Or Samara. 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 Who's Sadako? I don't know. It means, I just know that it means no worries. An airplane. <laughs> it's way shorter and seems more like something actually projected directly from an evil consciousness than the vaguely pretentious art school thing in the American version. I like that shot of people crawling backwards and the general contorted mindlessness of it, something that's echoed later with the reverse filming stuff they use in that scene where she comes out of the TV. Also, that freaky slowed-down audio with the couplet, Frolic and brine, goblets be thine. Sadako is the Dylan of art-making monsters. <laughs> she just took that shit and ran. The Grinch is kind of an artist, too. She goes out of her way to... She shows us how she's killing her victims, and they don't notice. And, so. uh, finally, we have Fire. I only have a couple. Um, uh, when she attends Emma's art show after their breakup, Adele sees paintings of herself up for display. Whereas before it was a warm and erotic experience, it's alienating and bitter to be Emma's former muse up for display, with their entire history encoded in art for everyone to scrutinize. The movie is blue is the warmest color. What? Have you seen that, Tom? I've not, no. I like movies that are whole sentences, and I do see those, as long as they have periods at the end. 
<laughs> and Flyers number two is in the 1984 Russian movie uh, Chuchello. Um, I apologize, Fire, for mispronouncing that, as I'm sure I have. A middle school girl named Lena is bullied by all her classmates. It starts with teasing. For example, they tease her about her grandfather, with whom she is living, because she prefers to buy art and patch his overcoat rather than buy a new overcoat and skip the art. It starts with teasing, but then develops into some hardcore bullying stemming from a wrongful accusation. By the end of the year, Lena takes drastic measures. In a parting gift to the class, Lena asks her grandfather to gift a treasured painting of his, a portrait which resembles Lena. The painting is delivered after Lena's name is cleared and the wrongful accusations dropped. There's a chilling moment as the painting is unveiled in front of a classroom of children abusers who suddenly realize the weight of their mistakes. Thank you for the podcast, and I look forward to a 3 by 3 on architecture. This is from Fire Slash Alexandra. So, fellows, do you have any runners-up? I liked in Dodgeball when they had been sword that bull by the horns thing, and I liked the ape Lincoln statue in Planet of the Apes. Um, uh, just uh, Maiden Heist. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, the, I love that artwork that they're mentioning in Owen Wilson's apartment. Um, but what I, what I, oh, the other one I thought of a horrific artwork is in Cabin in the Woods. There's that, that weird painting that they, oh, that's a good one. Shit. That's a great one. Fuck. I love that creepy painting. Yeah, I do too. Um, And the one, uh, the the other one is, uh, I watched this thanks to, uh, to Fire. Who got who got who suggested it based based on a thread on quarter three? There's this really really interesting movie called The Best Offer that has this great sequence of artworks because it's uh, it's Jeffrey Rush playing an uh, an antiquities um, uh, auctioneer basically he, he evaluates and auctions off antiques and there's there's a couple paintings in particular which I'm I just think that the best offer is really interesting uh, well done movie and I love that that she mentioned this I almost picked something from that um, but uh, but those are the only two I have cabin in the woods and the best offer so uh, who's coming See, up next? She... what'd you say in Cabin in the Woods, doesn't she like? It's like a one-way mirror that she decides she prefers to the because the painting's even creepier than. The yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's like a choice between sex and horror. Man, he's really fucking holding up the mirror to society. <laughs> Lindelof, wasn't he? Didn't he do that? No, it's Drew Goddard. How dare you? Good lord. <laughs> Just because somebody worked on Lost, Kelly Wan, does not make them Damon Lindelof. Uh, Drew Goddard directed and co-wrote it with Joss Whedon. Just because I tried out for Twister and didn't get it doesn't mean that it's not. (laughs) Oh, I've seen a trailer for another Philip Seymour Hoffman movie. I didn't know we had another one coming down the Uh, pike. He's doing an accent. I don't know what the movie is. It's based on some John LeCar either wrote a screenplay or called... What? It's a a German accent, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it's called the uh, Water Method Man, the, the Something Man, the somebody, the Twelve Mile Man. What the heck was it called? Method that's, Man's a uh, rap. So I don't remember. I just remember yeah. going, "Whoa!" I don't want to. Uh, closing my eyes. Yeah, no one to see the trailer, but glad that there's another Philip Seymour Hoffman movie coming. Yeah, certainly. 
Mm. All right, Kelly Wan, what do you got for us? What's next? You, you sound resigned and and already un, uneasy. No, hey, we're so excited because yeah. you, you told us last week this is the good one. Okay, this week the three by three topic is three best um like fake appliances in movies or real appliances. Just appliances. All right, we'll do something else. Three best. If you don't say anything long enough, Kelly Wand will change the topic. He will then adapt it. He will then expand it, and then he will abandon it. <laughs> well, I thought you were not thinking of <laughs> the stages so. of Kelly Wand's grief. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, uh, where did we end up? Appliances. Yeah, like show me to burn an ace, so I know you know what you're doing. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I kind of have an idea, but yeah, go ahead. Burn an ace, Kelly. What do you got for Like us? that toothpaste squirting machine from Gremlins that the guy invented. <laughs> I have no recollection of that. Uh, so like a fake toothpaste squirting machine would be one of your favorite appliances in a movie? Well, I didn't give one that was too good. So you're talking about things that are made up that don't exist in the real world, but somebody invented for a movie. Yeah, but an appliance, not like the eyeglass bracket in the jerk. Not like uh, what's not like Quietus because it's not an appliance. So Quietus was like a, an egg beater that like drilled your eyes out, and it would Quietus be... from Children of Men, the euthanasia yeah. kit. Huh. Yeah, it was like a, if it was like a euthanasia, like Roach Motel, that would count as long as it was electronic. Why is the one from Children of Men not applicable? Because it's not an appliance. It's, appliance. it's like a kit that you buy that has like a video. Or yeah, that, right. That's an oral. Um, what's the word, Tom? Drug. Yeah, it's an oral <laughs> drug, not an appliance. There, that's one's class one. The utility labs doesn't have to have to put a sticker on one of them, Dingus. You see, I don't understand what what is an appliance then. Like it's like a battery powered, like a uh, like a mixing bowl. Like so it's got to be battery powers. It has to have batteries. Right. Uh, does, does it have to make food? Right. No. Yeah, is this a kitchen appliance, Kelly Wan? Because it can be – obviously, you don't keep your toothpaste dispenser from Gremlins in the kitchen. So uh, it can be a bathroom appliance as well. Right. Could it be like a home electronics appliance? Yes, it could be. Like a garage door opener. Could it be a chessboard with holographic pieces that you might keep on the Millennium Falcon? No. Is that an appliance? No. Can it be huh? something you use yeah. on a heist that is mechanical? Like an umbrella. Or something that opens a safe. An umbrella that shoots bullets, but not an umbrella that keeps out rain. I'm thinking of an appliance we saw in a movie today to help start a car. Is that an appliance? Yeah, that's a good appliance. I like that one. Not an appliance, though. No, sorry. That's an an electronic device used for a heist. Sorry, Dingus. Rats. (laughs) It was a cigarette lighter, too, because they hot-wired it. Is that what you're talking about? Nope, you haven't seen this movie. So Kelly said three best fake appliances or appliances. Let's just go with appliances. Yeah. We'll just take appliances. All right, three best, best appliances. Yeah. All right, so if you have any instances of an appliance used in a movie that you want to tell us about, we would love to hear about it. Send it to 3 by 3 at quarter to 3com the number 3, the letter X, the number 3, at sign, and then you have to spell out quarter to 3com <laughs> Don't put any numerals in there. What? Use, use your letters. Uh, also, <laughs> next week... <laughs> Uh, next week, we will be seeing, some of us have already seen, uh, the new movie from these 
feisty Australians. Uh, they have a collective called Blue Tongue, and they do stuff that we really like. And their latest movie from director and writer David Michaud is called The Rover, um, which I'm pretty sure Dingus and I absolutely loved. And we can't wait to talk about it next week. Kelly Wand will have seen it. He will be doing a synopsis of it. A <sighs> rovopsis, if you will. <laughs> um Join- well, we'll find out. You won't know until you've actually seen the movie, Kelly Wand. What? You'll have to decide sure. what it's actually called, the synopsis. Uh, so join us for that next week. See the rover. Actually, if you can, it's a limited release right now. And here's a little teaser for you. It's the same company that distributed in the United States. This is a company that uh, thinks, you know what? That movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, Enemy or uh, that Jonathan Glazer, Scarlett Johansson thing, uh, Under the Skin, people in America should see that. So this what? company called A24, it's a little distribution company distributing some art house movies, they distributed Enemy, Under the Skin, and The Rover. So if you get a chance, if it's playing near you, see The Rover, uh, and we'll do a podcast on it next week. If not, join us for our 3 by 3 on appliances, and then when you do get to see The Rover, you can come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. And the rest of it again, which I'll, you'll probably notice a lot of things about these, these podcasts hold up, Kelly Wand. Yeah. I don't think that's true, even like the first time. Well, you wouldn't. You're way too hard on these podcasts. You're our podcast. You're this podcast's toughest critic, Kelly Wand. You got the hard on part right. <laughs> My name is Tom Chick. Uh, I have been joined by uh, Christian Marlowski. It's Christian Marlowski and Kelly Wand. Skirl. Skirl. Also, uh, the Statue of Liberty is good art in Planet of the Apes, too. Uh, I, I thought we had Kate Blanchett. Skrull. <laughs>